Welcome, Travis, and welcome, Israel. Travis, you're uh, on the top screen for me, so why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, your channel and things that uh, you do. Yeah, uh, so thanks, Eddie. Uh, really excited uh, to be here. So uh, I'm a, a co-host on Proselytize or Apostasize. We host like uh, debates, discussions, interviews, things of that nature. And I've also joined the Reasons to Believe team in their apologetics community. Uh, so I do uh, volunteer work with Reasons to Believe. And I'm on the downhill side of finishing my master's in atmospheric science. So really looking forward to that. And in my spare free time, I do enjoy studying, you know, topics in the philosophy of religion. So. Sweet. And Israel, tell us a little bit about you. Oh, hey, what's up, guys? So, uh, well, I, first of all, I, I want to say uh, uh, thanks to Travis for, uh, for, for this for the debate, for being here, and for, uh, for Eddie, too, for, for hosting it. Um, and, and yeah, for, forget about the wide strand of debate. It's a breath of fresh air. Now uh, we're going to see debaters with hair. <laughs> no, no offense to my boy Eddie. No, I was no going to say, hey, come on now. <laughs> Maybe not the yeah. brightest idea to mess with the moderator, huh? <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, I learned a lot before the debate even started. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the eventualist camp, and I certainly had to modify some of my beliefs in order to. Uh, it's a bit softer claim, so I want to thank them a lot for uh, for making this to uh, as a challenge for me to uh, improve and get a bit better. And uh, about myself, um, um, I got a channel. Mostly my ministry is in Spanish, uh, uh, so it, my channel is called Sabiduría Bíblica y Apologética. Uh, we do debates in Spanish and all sort of sort of uh, uh, apologetics topics from. Uh, um, ancient Near Eastern uh, stuff when it comes to ethics in the Old Testament to um, apologetics against atheism. And I guess we'll be getting into uh, some Catholicism stuff too, but, but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's one of the guys. Well, that's kind of what I do. It's usually in Spanish, but, um, but yeah, I do uh, bilingual stuff too. Uh, we got a, a new project, Apologists Assemble. Um, and we're a group hmm. of about 18 uh, apologists. Uh, uh, some of them have a small channels or, or podcasts or, or uh, some form of media. And uh, yeah, we got together and we streamed together. We're kind of streaming uh, uh, about once a, once a week so far. But yeah, we're looking to try to make it like a community channel. So yeah. Sweet. I appreciate that. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, as a poor host as I am, uh, mm -hmm. I did not update the uh, description with the links, but I will get them in the description. So uh, so the format is we're going to have two 10 to 15 minute openings. It's not going to be a strict time limit. Mm -hmm. um, if one goes over, the other one will be allotted uh, that same amount of time. Then we'll go into, um, were you guys wanting to do a cross-examination or just an open discussion? Um, I think probably uh, open discussion and, you know, just okay. more organic, you know, as, as we go yeah. along. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so we'll go into the open discussion um, and then let each one of you kind of do a quick closure, a closer, uh, you know, where you sure. think you stand, the other person stands. And after that, we'll do question and answer. So if you have questions, uh, I do ask that you wait a little while into uh, the debate before you ask them so I can find them easier. Um, I'm not special enough to have uh, <laughs> to be monetized yet, so we can't do the super chats and make them easy to find. But you'll get there, uh, bro. 
Yeah, one of these days, yeah. Uh, so uh, with that, we are going to, I'm going to bounce off the screen. Uh, I'm going to let, and I'm going to bounce Israel off and let Travis start it off. I will be moderating, but I'm going to be uh, as little involved as possible. I'll try to keep the conversation on point and not a whole lot of rabbit trails, or maybe if there's talking past each other or something, I'll ask clarification questions. Not if I uh, make it horrible. No, just <laughs> that can very well happen, by the way. I anticipate that. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I do have the remove from the screen button. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You ready, Travis? Uh, Yeah. Let me bring this up. Uh, I'm going to uh, do my opening whenever. Okay. All right. And fire away. Okay, great. Uh, so welcome, everybody. And I'd like to start off by thanking Israel for participating in this debate and Eddie for hosting this. I'm really looking forward to it. So to begin, you know, I'm not hostile towards presup. Uh, rather, I'm going to be making a very modest claim that using a Richard Swinburne approach of applying principles from the philosophy of science in combination with the philosophy of religion is a preferable method for making progress in the philosophy of religion. So virtue epistemology is basically a collection of recent approaches to epistemology that give epistemic or intellectual virtue concepts an important and even fundamental role. Uh, these virtue epistemologists, such as myself, tend to focus on formulating virtue-based accounts of knowledge or justifi justification uh, for which myself is highlighted most promisingly in the theoretical virtues used in the philosophy of science. So, first of all, I think it's important to consider the nature and justification of explanation, which is crucial for philosophy of science. As Richard Swinburne states, uh, its degree of simplicity and its scope determine the intrinsic probability of a theory, its probability independent of its relation to any evidence. The simpler a theory, the more probable it is. The simplicity of a theory is a matter of its postulating few logically uh, independent entities, few properties of entities, few kinds of entities, few kinds of properties, properties with more readily observable uh, and few uh, separate laws with few terms relating few variables. The simplest formulation to each law being mathematically simple. A theory of fundamental particles, for example, would be simple to the extent to which it postulates only few kinds of particles with such things as mass and electric charge, of which we can observe other instances on a larger scale whose behavior is governed by simple mathematical formula. A, the a theory is simpler and so has a greater prior probability to the extent to which these criteria are satisfied. Of course, we have to take into consideration other things such as explanatory power, scope. Uh, does it possess the causal adequacy to bring about the phenomena in need of explanation? Internal coherence. Does the, th you know, the theory should not violate other warranted beliefs? And one of the most important of these is the principle of unification. Uh, the more varied events the theory can explain, the better. A theory which can explain phenomena in different areas is to be preferred to one which can explain phenomena in only one area. The best theory may be less than adequate, less than perfectly simple, but all things being equal between two explanations, the simpler explanation is more probably true 
because it's more modest and a simpler claim has less ways that it can be wrong than a more complex, stronger claim that's open to multiple lines of attack. One thing we want to be on guard for when considering theory choice is if a theory has to tack on theoretical content to solve isolated problems, it's going to have a much lower prior probability and theoretical cost. Now, what I mean by that is insofar as it, you know, purports to apply more and more objects to tell you more and more, you know, ways to get around the problem, uh, it lowers uh, the prior probability of the theory and makes uh, makes it less probable uh, than a more parsimonious explanation that can successfully unify, you know, the explanation. Another thing to focus on is uh, explanatory power. As Richard Swinburne states, a theory has explanatory power in as much as it entails or makes probable the occurrence of many diverse phenomena that are all observed to occur, and the occurrence of which is not otherwise to be expected. A good example of this is Newton's theory of motion. The theory was simple because there were only very general laws, uh, a very great mathematical simplicity stating the mechanistic relation that holds between all material bodies. So the law of gravitation stated that all material bodies attract each other in pairs with forces proportional to the product of the masses of each uh, of the diversity proportional to the square of their uh, distances apart. So the relations are simple because the distance is not raised to a complicated power since the theory reported to cover all the mechanical behavior of the earthly and heavenly bodies there was in 1689. Now, of course, other scientific knowledge uh, with which, you know, would better, more, you know, fit its scope is uh, exceedingly great. Um, but this theory was concerned only with the mechanical interactions, not, for example, things like electrical interactions and so forth. The theory also had enormous explanatory power that it rendered very probable the observed behavior of bodies of very different kinds in very different circumstances. Uh, the motions of planets, the rise and fall of tides, the interactions of colliding bodies and so forth. This aspect of a theory's explanatory power also gives it predictive power. We can think of the same thing with Alan Goose's theory of cosmic inflation. Based on the criteria of theoretical virtues, it offered an inference to the best explanation of the uniformity in the cosmic microwave background and thus gave us plausible reason to hold to cosmic inflation, uh, which enabled future scientific discoveries, making it fruitful. So we see continuous examples of these theoretical virtues having a proven track record in the philosophy of science and explaining phenomena. We also find the same criteria of prior probability, which is determined by simplicity, explanatory power, scope, fit with background knowledge, if available, uh, that works equally well in assessing the probability of a hypothesis of personal explanation or a hypothesis uh, that a certain agent produce some effect in virtue of certain intentions. A practical example of this can be seen in forensic sciences, so in all fields, we seek the simplest hypothesis, which would lead us to expect the phenomena that we find. Now, this is going to be one of the first areas where I disagree with the presuppositionalist. Uh, so on a complete explanation, uh, you know, it, it cites persons and their powers, beliefs, and purposes 
uh, that explain them is a personal explanation. If it cites inanimate substances, their powers and liabilities uh, to explain the phenomena, that's also available. In other words, the laws of nature, uh, see, lost my place. the laws of nature uh, complete, uh, can be a complete explanation as being inanimate. I think uh, we all seek, you know, an ultimate explanation of everything observable that substances or substances on which everything else depends for its existence and properties. There seems to be three possible explanations, none of which I would call irrational. Now, one of them is materialism or naturalism. Now, what I mean by this is the view that the existence and operation of all the factors involved uh, in personal explanation have a complete and inanimate explanation. It is not extreme nor obviously false that persons, their beliefs, purposes, and so on are just material objects and their physical states. To elaborate on what I mean here, materialism is the view uh, that personal and mental, though distinct from it, are fully caused by the physical, that the existence of persons and having their uh, purposes, powers, beliefs that they do has an inanimate explanation in terms of the powers and liabilities of such material objects as nerve cell firings and so forth. It may also be the case that as we explain the whole state of the universe, we eventually come to a first state of affairs, a chunk of matter with the power to produce all subsequent material and the liability to do so at some time or another. The first state would by itself provide the ultimate explanation of everything. Again, there is nothing irrational about such a theory, and we cannot simply beg the question against it. The second uh, alternative to materialism is a mixed theory uh, that the existence and operation of the factors involved in personal explanation uh, do not all have alternative explanations in inanimate terms, and conversely, that the existence and operation of the factors involved in inanimate explanation do not all have ultimate explanation in personal terms. This is uh, sometimes called the theory of humanism. The third explanation is that the existence and operation of the factors involved in inanimate explanations are themselves to be explained in personal terms, where persons uh, include not just human persons, but persons of other kinds. Of this, I'm specifically referring to theism, which is the view that there is a God. On this view, God keeps the existence of material objects of our universe from moment to moment with their powers and liabilities to act. Uh, he acts on the world as we act on our bodies, although unlike us, he is not dependent on anybody for his power to act. And so while it is true that things like metal expand because it's heated and that it has the power to expand, the liability to exercise that power when heated, the metal exists because God keeps it in being and has the power to expand uh, and give the liability to exercise that power when heated because God simultaneously sustains it in power and liability in virtue of its basic powers. So in more simpler terms, a material explanation does not rule out nor even argue against a personal explanation behind the material explanation. Go to my next slide here. So uh, these three uh, explanations uh, for providing grounds of all observable phenomena can be assessed 
using the criteria of theoretical virtues to arrive at an inference to the best explanation. Materialism and humanism are going to come at theoretical cost due to the necessity of postulating arbitrary limits or cutoffs without explanation. There would not be an expected unification of various other phenomena observed, such as objective morality, the applicability of mathematics, principles of reason, the physics and fine-tuning, states of consciousness. These are going to be, in many instances, brute facts, and according to the theoretical virtues, when you have to tack on ad hoc theoretical complexity to solve isolated problems, it lowers the probability of that theory as being true and giving an advantage to a more parsimonious explanation. As Dr. Joshua Rasmussen argues, a perfect foundation with purely positive qualities that lacks arbitrary limits is going to have the virtue of simplicity and offer the most parsimonious explanation for the uh, totality of all reality. Likewise, it's going to have a theoretical gain as objective morality or moral knowledge in the world coming from a moral foundational source is a, a more parsimonious explanation. Principles of reason and the applicability of mathematics are more parsimoniously explained as coming from a foundational uh, source that is itself intelligent and intentful. Conscious self-aware agents are going to be a more expected matter of course arising from a foundational source that is itself uh, uh, consciously self-aware. And so using the criteria of theoretical virtues, we can make an inference to the best explanation in favor of theism. So not only does this offer a simple explanation to the phenomena in observation, it offers a unification to independent phenomena, which is going to give it a tremendous theoretical gain. So with this view and this approach, I think we can see we have uh, a much more powerful and valid reason for believing in God than on presuppositionalism. This is also uh, where top philosophers of religion, uh, you know, are making meaningful conversations. So you can think of people like, you know, Oppie, Draper, Swinburne, Rasmussen, and many others are making progress in the philosophy of religion using this methodology. So it, it's obviously uh, more fruitful than presuppositionalism. Okay, and another thing is um, with presuppositionalism, we often get this claim that other views are reduced to absurdity, uh, and that is a very bold claim uh, that I'm certainly not comfortable with making. But I'm actually going to hold off on really making any further critiques of presuppositionalism until I hear Israel's defense, because again, this is a really bold, strong claim that all other worldviews are absurd. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to hearing the justification to that and why that should be preferable to using an inference to the best explanation using the criteria of theoretical virtues. And so with that, I will go ahead and close out And by the way, I'm sorry, I had a very hard time reading my screen. Thank you for that, Travis. Very uh, informative. I'm anxious to see um, what kind of weapons that Israel's going to bring. Well, the the print was so small, I was like really squinting to read it. I had a little bit of trouble. I I can clarify during the conversation. Yeah, 
if you need That's, to. So. Yeah, I, I saw him doing a lot of writing, so you got your hands full. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to bring Israel on now. Appreciate right. that, Travis. All righty. Weapons. Oh. Uh, if it was about weapons, I got my Glock right there in the basement. Oh, 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 yeah. We, we'll. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's kind of one of my uh, my hobbies. So uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later off screen. Uh, <laughs> so did you get all that? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, actually, so a uh, lot of of, of uh, what I uh, prepare for. So so yeah, I guess okay, it's a uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. So uh, because I think we're going a little bit over over our our cases. I don't think. It, uh, we expect that uh, what the other side is going to present, but okay. um, yeah. So uh, let me know when. All right, begin. I'm gonna bounce off here, and it is all you, brother. Okay, so first of all, I'm gonna start with the big question: under what standard, Travis? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, uh, well, uh, that was pretty <laughs> good. I gotta say. <laughs> sorry sorry guys i was just a clown so uh, hope you guys don't mind though those kind of silly jokes but okay uh all right well we're gonna start uh with just uh, a brief mention of the of the biblical case why we believe it's a, a it's a, a biblical so uh we believe it is biblical because um uh of the ad hominem argument so as uh gordon h clark puts it uh it's pretty much about assuming the other person's position reducing it to absurdity or um uh showing the, the internal inconsistency of the other person's uh, hypotheses, um, and then uh, assuming your uh, position in order to show the internal consistency. And uh, this is extremely, extremely misunderstood, and it is a crucial part of uh, presuppositional apologetics. And I'm going to give another example to make sure we make it very clear what we mean by uh, the ad hominem argument. I'm going to present a, a quick analogy. So I'm going to bring a court example. We have, let's say we have a murder and we have uh, three people. We have John, Brian, and Lydia. And let's say that um, uh, John was in the, in the crime scene. We find uh, his fingerprint. We found uh, uh, the blood in, in a, uh, his blood in, in, the, uh, in the murder weapon. We find all these evidence. We have uh, found motives. Uh, we found them at the uh, we, we don't know uh, when we were, when he was at the uh, uh, at some place uh, like like he cannot explain at what place he was whenever there was the the murder going on so he could have been in, in there uh, so you can put all these um, evidences for for John uh, for him to be a case so uh, now you have uh, Brian let's say Brian wasn't there you didn't find his fingerprints and then you have uh, you find blood in the in the his blood in the crime scene or something so let's say you don't find that for Brian and you don't find that for Lydia so let's say you put um, all the um, all, all these qualities, all these um, uh, pieces of evidence, uh, and you assume them uh, with each of the uh, persons in, in this case, with each of the hypotheses. So there's the John was the uh, guilty one hypothesis, Brian was a guilty hypothesis, or Lydia was uh, guilty hypothesis. So you assume all of them. So when it comes to presuppositionalism, uh, presuppositionalism a very common mistake is that uh, we just assume our position and, and uh, we like we don't assume anything else so so uh that's a very common misconception so we do assume all the other positions too we assume Lydia's and brian's and we see that uh it doesn't make sense uh, as uh that hypothesis that they were guilty does not correspond to the uh to the evidence so with john we see a different story because we see that he matches the uh um 
pretty much is the evidence. So, okay, um, we're going to see one, one of these examples in, uh, in the Bible. So with Matthew uh, 12, 22, 28. So we see Jesus reducing uh, to absurdity, the accusation of the Pharisees about Christ casting demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus replied, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste and no city or house divided against itself with stand. And if Satan uh, cast out uh, Satan, he's divided against himself. So how will his kingdom stand? And if, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Um, by whom uh, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, there will be uh, judges. Uh, but uh, by this spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his house? So we see that uh, he assumed the position of the of the Pharisees. And he was like, okay, all right, let's assume you're right. Let, let's let's say that I cast demons by Satan. So uh, he shows the uh, how this doesn't work, how this is inconsistent, on um, and by showing examples of how a kingdom divided against itself or a house against itself will not stand. And then he assumes his position to show uh, uh, how the the uh, the kingdom is upon you, how there's internal consistency, and how it makes more uh, sense with the uh, current evidence, which is about casting out demons and his purpose. So um, uh, we also see some other uh, uh, stuff in the Bible, also that uh, uh, that there's some limit form of limitation going on on for uh, for what is not of God. So in Colossians two three, referring to Christ, says in whom all um, all all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Proverbs 1, 3, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. First Corinthians uh, 3, 19, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, uh, the Lord knows uh, the thoughts of the wise and they, uh, they are free of aisle. First Corinthians uh, one twenty. where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So, uh, the Bible seems to be more consistent with the presuppositional approach, but we will expand on it in, with uh, today's presentation. So just wanted to get the reasons of why we believe it's biblical and uh, how that is our basis. So now we are going to start with the actual uh, case. So um, so the first point that I want to drive today is that God and the Bible function as an epistemic access device. So when I mean device, I don't mean uh, uh, something physical. I don't mean like like a uh, like a phone as a device or something. Uh, so a device could be uh, metaphysical, could be something that gives you access onto something else. So uh, we're going to explore this in further detail with an example, with a uh, uh, with an analogy. So imagine yourself, uh, we ask yourself, so is there a polar bear eating fish? or a seal on a specific mountain on Alaska. We could start with direct acquaintance and rely on memory on how we know there's uh, polar bears, seals, or fish in Alaska. Then talk about analytic tr truths on how uh, a bear in its uh, definition uh, could imply that it is an animal that eats uh, seals or fish. Uh, uh, that um, that, that is just an example, so I'm not, not saying that's part of the definition, but it could be part of the definition. It's about bringing analytic truths and how uh, you can make a case using analytic truths with this case of a, of a, to know if there's a bear eating a fish in Alaska. So then uh, uh, make an inductive, an, an inductive case on how it's extremely probable that there's a bear eating fish uh, in a specific mountain on Alaska. So after you start with the record acquaintance, then uh, uh, reliance of memory, then uh, 
analytic truths. So uh, you show some form of uh, uh, correspondence. And then uh, uh, from this, you act argue inductively. So it is very probable that there's a, a bear eating a fish uh, uh, in a specific mountain of Alaska. So, um, or if you have a device that gives you epistemic access or connection to the specific mountain, you can verify that it is the case that there's a polar bear eating a fish in Alaska. Could be something like a, a satellite signal. Uh, could be, uh, you can travel very close and see them uh, through binoculars, the binoculars being your epistemic access device. Uh, you can be there and see it with your own eyes, as our eyes could be a uh, epistemic access device. As, uh, for example, if I, uh, there's this camera, or this monitor in front of my face, uh, you, you, you know, I use my eyes in order to get that information into my mind. Uh, so if, uh, uh, let's see where I was left. Or you can, um, yeah, so, or you can have someone go there and call them and let them tell you if there is a polar bear eating a fish right now on that specific hill. So these uh, type of epistemic access device will be, uh, uh, in this case, um, uh, testimony. So testimony from another person, and we use testimony in a lot of things. So if you want to know if uh, we went to the moon, so you can also use the testimony of the people that went there, and uh, I hope we don't get uh, test uh, uh, personal testimony in a um, that much in play because in the case of the resurrection uh, uh, actually has to, and not just the resurrection, but a lot of uh, historical accounts rely on uh, testimony for from enemies or from someone that is uh, within the the position, uh, the bias position. So, okay, as you can tell, we can gain direct acquaintance uh, through our experience, even uh, through devices. So you could uh, close your eyes. Uh, they could be your eyes, your ears, uh, or a camera, a satellite, uh, pictures, or as we mentioned, eyewitness uh, testimony, somewhat a person uh, revealing uh, something to you. Uh, my second point is that uh, solving presuppositional apologetics, we argue that God is a device that gives us epistemic access through the means of special revelation, what we call scripture. So uh, God, uh, by revealing that, uh, 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 since he have, uh, has epistemic access onto things that uh, we don't, uh, and on points where we have to argue inductively, uh, we use him as our device. And uh, what he reveals to us, that information that we have access to, would be scripture. So... Um, the challenges, of course, is analyzing these epistemic access devices to be reliable, to be virtuous, or as Aristotle uh, puts it, uh, to, uh, to have excellence, uh, to make sure our process is virtuous, our devices uh, are reliable. So we, uh, so we call to make an internal analysis for consistency the same way that you would uh, for uh, binoculars or a satellite or uh, reliability of a person. So um so th th there's all sorts of sorts of uh, internal consistencies try to be um, uh, verified in these in this case. So, for example, if it's a camera, you make sure that it is working, that no one tampered it, or that no one is putting some other signal to show another video from uh, 
from Alaska since we were in Alaska. So, so yeah, you, uh, you make sure that there is internal consistency. And uh, that is a big part of virtual epistemology. You make sure that uh, you are, um, uh, that the whole process is virtuous. And in this case, we analyze that the devices themselves are virtuous. So my third point uh, will be to appeal to an inference to the best explanation. You guys are going to notice that um, it's not going to sound as presuppositional as you might think, but it is extremely presuppositional is to assume the other person's um, uh, the other person's case in order to show the internal inconsistencies, then assume yours. So it's going to look very uh, evidentialist. But, but yeah, we're going to go uh, with inference to the best explanation. So uh, uh, analyzing both and see how they square uh, to senders as competing hypotheses. When it comes to explain, we're going to start with explanatory power. Uh, when we see uh, examples such as the polar bear analogy by having an epistemic access device, we have higher uh, explanatory power. As we mentioned, uh, we have direct epistemic access to see if there's an actual uh, bear eating a, uh, a fish in Alaska, while, um, uh, as we mentioned, the process from an evidentialist approach start from direct acquaintance, reliance of memory, uh, um, analytic truths, and then uh, build a case and then induction at the very end. There could be, of course, more steps uh, within there, but uh, you don't have the same power. We have direct access uh, with our senses uh, through um, through these uh, devices. So explanatory scope, uh, with God being omnipresent, being in all faculties that we can think in our human experience, with revelatory scope as wide as scripture, implications of scripture, uh, uh, yeah, to the extent that implications of scripture led us. Then we have a much wider explanatory scope because our, our explanatory scope goes as far as what God can reveal. So it's much wider than uh, what we can uh, get if we start with a uh, with direct acquaintance, and we're gonna explore later on. Uh, Travis is gonna show us the uh, where do we get the limits on our knowledge when it comes to uh, his evidential process. So uh, we're gonna get into that later. Uh, so then, accord uh, when it comes to epistemic access devices uh, um, are used in everyday life areas. So if God revealed something as in the Bible. Uh, it makes sense that it is uh, an epistemic access device uh, to what God can reveal. So uh, we use these epistemic devices all the time. So it's very odd that my friend uh, Travis in virtual epistemology refuses to use uh, these uh, devices to have epistemic access to significant, significant and meaningful facets of our human life as the Bible is expressed in the, in the uh, first couple uh, verses that I mentioned. So I'm um, not saying that there's no knowledge uh, without God. Uh, I'm saying that there's a very limited, not sure what is the extent, but um, I would say uh, we could put it as significant or meaningful facets, uh, not being, not having access to uh, some significant or meaningful. So um but yeah, we, we can argue about the extent of uh, what those verses mean later on. Uh, with ad hocness, we're going to leave it uh, for later. Uh, depends on what uh, uh, Travis is going to bring uh, today. So we'll leave that for later. And simplicity of explanation, Occam's Razor, or the principle of parsimony. Um, and we see all the hypotheses having to be made uh, to develop a very almost certain case that there's a polar bear in Alaska, it complicates as new hypotheses have to be developed uh, for everything. While using an epistemic access device, the answers are, are already there. They just got to be verified for internal consistency. Not saying we get all the answers. My case is uh, a little bit more humble. Just I'm saying that we have a much larger body of knowledge as the extent of what God lets us uh, have. Um, 
So is virtuous epistemology virtuous? Uh, uh, would, uh, I would ask the audience, uh, would it be virtuous or is, it, is there excellence in having epist an epistemic access device and refusing to use it? You have that device and uh, you're not using it. You, you prefer uh, to go some other route. So let's say if you want to verify the camera in front of you, um, it'll be like closing your eyes and using more about reasoning and probability to say that there is a, a, uh, um, a monitor in front of me instead of simply using your eyes as an epistemic connection device to give you that direct information, that, uh, that acquaintance. And, uh, and another thing uh, I would say uh, to this uh, uh, epistemic access device, uh, something interesting is that we may have some form of direct acquaintance as um, uh, we believe in the doctrine of regeneration. So, uh, if we have experienced something as, uh, being uh, regeneratory, something, uh, supernatural, ha uh, having a change of heart, a change of mind, a, a radical change of heart, uh, that is some personal experience that we can, uh, start from in our, uh, case using direct acquaintance. So I could even use direct acquaintance even in my case. So, now I'm not sure how much time I have left. Honestly, uh, I still have some some more stuff that I want to mention. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to use the argument uh, of God from logic, and we're going to see uh, why I'm bringing it up uh, later on. So uh, the argument goes as follows: It's not a syllogism. Um, I'm just going to uh, express what uh, uh, what uh, James Anderson and Greg uh, Welty in their uh, paper. Um, Oh, I have the name, uh, the, the, the Lord of Non-Contradiction, uh, what, what they mentioned the argument is. So the laws of logic are necessary truths about truths. They are necessarily true propositions. Propositions are real entities, uh, but uh, cannot be physical entities. They're uh, essentially thoughts. So the laws of logic are necessarily true thoughts. Since they are uh, true in every possible world, they must exist in every possible world. But if there are necessarily existent thoughts, there must be a necessarily existent mind. And if there's a necessarily existent mind, there must be a necessarily existent person. A necessarily existent person must be a spiritual in nature because no physical entity exists necessarily. Thus, if there are laws of logic, uh, there must also be a necessarily existent personal spiritual being. Uh, the laws of logic imply the existence of God. Um, so, um, a, and Anderson later on uh, says that uh, that pretty much the, uh, the skeptic presupposes God in every step. Uh, and I quote in uh, uh, page uh, 337, uh, if the laws of logic are metaphysically depending on, uh, dependent on God, it follows that every logical argument presupposes the existence of God. What this means is that every sound theistic argument not only proves the existence of God, but also presupposes the existence of God insofar as that argument depends on logical inference. Indeed, every um, unsound theistic argument presupposes the existence of God and uh, the same goes naturally for every anti-theistic argument. The irony must not be missed. Missed. Uh, one can logically argue against God only if God exists. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it here. And the reason why I'm bringing this is because uh, there's um, some, some stuff that has to be assumed in his case. So if he starts from direct acquaintance, uh, uh, what is having direct acquaintance to uh, the I? I have direct acquaintance 
And there's uh, some uh, metaphysical problems with that. So we have the problem of mirology, whether we have uh, nihilistic mirology or whether we have uh, universalist uh, mirology and how we derive that there's such a thing as an eye. Then there could be the uh, the argument of J.P. Moreland of the uh, of the existence of the soul. And I would say uh, it gets you to being the best explanation that there's such a thing as a soul. However, um, uh, the one thing is to have a best explanation and one of them and one thing is having a direct a, a epistemic access device to show you uh, uh, that uh, is giving you the information that there is such a thing as a soul so my explanation is better in uh, uh, when it comes to uh, explaining uh, direct acquaintance. And also, uh, in order to uh, get virtual epistemology going, um, we uh, there's a lot of things that ought to be done in order to, in, in studies to have intellectual uh, virtuous um, honesty and all that. So there's a lot of oddness, a lot of um, uh, ethics going on here. So I want to hear what is uh, Travis's case on how he derives oddness and how he connects it, uh, that oddness to uh, the person. So all the facets, how does he derive it pretty much? And uh, it's pretty much a problem that uh, anti-realists bring. And uh, I think it's pretty interesting. And it, honestly, it's pretty hard to uh, to deal with that and uh, have a different view, but I want to see how uh, Travis is going to deal with that. And uh, I guess uh, we'll start with that and uh, yeah, rest my case. Sweet. That was uh, well done. You Both of you guys uh, <clears throat> came out swinging, definitely did your uh, homework. So I'm going to bring Travis back on here. Uh, and, uh, again, man, uh, I appreciate you guys preparing so much. That was, um, not the typical openings that I normally hear for presuppositional apologetics or, uh, really many people with virtue epistemology. So, um, right. And, um, one thing I, I did want to say to Israel, uh, real briefly is, you know, I, I did want to make the clarification that I'm going to bring a lot of this out in the open conversation that, uh, I'm basically just laying out my view uh, in the initial opening statement so we can get into the meat of all this yeah. discussion. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this is where um, the gloves come off and okay. So mayhem ensues. No, oh, no, never mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's, yeah, no, yeah. We're, we're all good. <laughs> we're all brothers here and um, uh, you guys have been pretty charitable so far, so I don't expect anything uh, bad, but I'm going to bounce okay. off and let you two guys, uh, kind of uh, have open discussion. I would ask that um, typically in open discussions, sometimes one person gets on the offensive and the other the defensive and mm-hmm. kind of stays that way. Um, I want to make sure that you guys kind of uh, self-moderate and <laughs> let the other person answer, let them finish their answers um, and yeah. give them a chance to ask questions too. So, and with that, I will pop off and let you guys have it awesome and uh travis i, I don't oh. know if you want to go like one point in one point like to kind of like um, go well since I, I i had a difficult uh because the letters were really small um i wanted to just kind of like restate my you know some of like what i'm arguing um yeah, yeah okay, okay. yeah so um basically um and you know it, it's basically you know justified by your acquaintance with the analytical truth of epistemic virtue. So, you know, um, an- analytic would be, vir- you know, virtue in-, in meaning. So there is 
a justification there. Now, when I'm applying to theoretical virtues uh, from the philosophy of science, so taking like a Swinburnian uh, Rasmussen approach, you know, we're looking at things which you agree with. And I appreciate you uh, coming over to my side quite a bit on that, uh, of, you know, like, you know, explanatory power, explanatory depth, you know, does it have the causal adequacy to bring about the phenomena in need of uh, explanation? Does it unify other points of, of, of data and everything? And so I like how Joshua Rasmussen will, you know, have the perfect foundation argument that, you know, absolute perfection with purely positive qualities uh, that contains these properties uh, is going to be the most parsimonious explanation, you know, that would make uh, theism, you know, an inference to the best explanation uh, of ultimate reality. And so that's kind of where I was going there. And one thing I'm wondering, though, is because uh, you seem to be agreeing with, you know, the theoretical virtues, but I'm wondering how this gives you epistemic access to the reliability of scripture. Um, well, uh, that's why I mentioned that uh, we got to argue for internal consistency, and that is for every uh, epistemic access device, not just uh, scripture, not just God. So uh, sure. it's something that has to be done for the eye, making sure the eye is reliable. So, for example, if someone has uh, cataracts or if someone has a um, I don't know, they, uh, they are squinting. <laughs> uh, th that'll be some uh, things that can make it difficult for that, uh, for the eye to actually have uh, reliable epistemic access, same for a camera, same for a satellite, and same for whatever other right. device, uh, scripture included. Okay, so uh, another thing is, um, uh, I, and I, I do want to make it, make it clear that I hold to the reliability of scripture. In fact, I even hold to inerrancy. So I'm not denying scripture. Uh, I'm just, you know, what I'm doing is I'm presenting principles from the philosophy of science in combination uh, with the philosophy of religion. And that's how the mo more progress is being made in the philosophy of, uh, of religion. So I'm making a very modest claim. And I, I think it's, a much stronger claim that you're making on presuppositionalism, because um, I, I do want to kind of go back to what you said that, you know, um, that you take these theoretical virtues and you access the probability of other competing hypotheses. Was that correct? Um, yeah. So, of course, uh, we're going to um, assume or presuppose all the hypotheses, not just ours. So we presuppose whatever is on the table and see which one comes up on top. Not necessarily reducing to absurdity, but uh, uh, it could be simply uh, just a best explanation. Then. And uh, yeah, so one of the things is that um, we have a lot in common. So my case was designed to have um, a lot in common with, uh, uh, with a lot of the literature that you're going to be using. So as you noticed, uh, I'm going to be using a, a direct acquaintance, analyticity, and I'm not going to dispute uh, any of those. What uh, my main case is about, um, it's, it's, it's about um, the, uh, yeah, pretty much the, the, the scope of our, uh, of our explanation. So which one can make account of, of uh, more things in reality? And I'm saying that uh, your view is pretty limited, um, and my view has a wider scope. How is my view uh, limited in, in light of using a Swinburnian Rasmussen approach of all the principles from the philosophy of science in combination with the philosophy of religion? And um, I, I think it, it's uh, it, it's very interesting that um, 
you know, we don't beg the question against things like um, atheistic Platonism or Hegelian idealism that the universe is just simply rational, you know, metaphysically rational of necessity and, and things of that nature. So my view is that, you know, I see those as possible, reasonable explanations. I'm simply saying that theism, in light of its theoretical virtues, would offer a better explanation. So that's the the case <laughs> that, that I'm ba- basically making. And I'm saying that that approach is where we can make more progress in the philosophy of religion, because you'll see, you know, even the atheistic philosophers like uh, Oppie, Draper and everything, they use the, the same line of reasoning. So this is, you know, where the top philosophers of, of religion are, are really, you know, having fruitful dialogue and, um, I, I would strongly contest it. Uh, this is limited in scope. Uh, well, uh, no, actually, I don't have uh, those limitations. I can use um, a lot of their literature. It's just I'm saying that uh, a, there's a lot of instances in which uh, we have to argue uh, for something based on probability. So one example that I give is that whenever you're uh, doing mm-hmm. uh um, direct acquaintance, you're arguing for direct acquaintance, you're saying that uh, the I uh, is having the uh, the experience uh, with something else. So when it comes to uh, the I problem, what is I, uh, who is receiving these uh uh, who is receiving these uh, uh, experiences? Um, you gotta argue that oh, it is very probable that we have uh, that we are a soul. Uh, mm-hmm. While I have epistemic access. Uh, uh, with God telling me that we do have a soul. So, um, okay, I do want to. There's a lot of these things that um, this is just one example. There's a lot of examples where you have to argue inductively, and I don't because I have access, which is uh, what I'm trying to build my case on. Okay, uh, that brings up a really interesting point. Um, that I do want to get up because um, I do make a, a distinction between my religious epistemology and what, you know, basically how I would argue in uh, philosophy of religion to make the the case for theism. So basically, I distinguish between knowing God exists and showing that God exists. Now, I'm sympathetic to things like, not really, not reformed epistemology, but something like phenomenal conservatism, that I have a direct experience with God. So, uh, and it seems to be the case. And as absent some overwhelming defeater, I'm justified in believing you know, I, I personally know God. I, I know Christ. I experience him. I know he died for my sins uh, and that I will eternally exist with him. I know that with certainty. Uh, that's absolutely certain. Uh, but I'm distinguishing that from my argumentation in the philosophy of religion. If that makes uh, any sense. I'm not sure. I'm getting it, uh, what, what you're trying to go at, but um, I guess I could rephrase the problem a little bit more clearly to see if we can uh, go in some other direction. Okay, so uh, there is one thing I do want to bring up, um, because um, one one thing that really, because we have a lot in common, but something that would kind of distinguish our views is your argument, you know, your argument seems to sort of assume dualism, uh, and I'm an idealist. And I would argue for uh, theistic idealism in light of the theoretical virtues, especially simplicity, uh, as being more probable. So do do you want to go that route? Um, Are are you presupposing? Um, 
a, not a really because I'm an idealist too. So uh, I, I guess um, there's a lot of semantic nuances on what I'm trying to argue uh, with the soul and the body. Of course, I would argue uh, okay. for uh, digital physics that uh, whatever these body or physical matter is, it's more about uh, it, it always reduces uh, to information. So uh, there's some studies on, on, on how Christianity must be uh, uh, understood as a as a novel or, or as a um, or mathematical equations or, or data or mm-hmm. stuff like this. So uh, I would say we actually would agree to that. So I would just say it's just semantic nuances. So where I think the meat of the argument is, so um, uh, I want to ask you the question. So is it intellectually uh, virtuous to um, reject an, an epistemic access device uh, when you have it available and instead go uh, without it? And especially if we're talking about God and scripture and you being a Christian and having uh, direct acquaintance in a uh, in regeneration in your life. So uh, let's go with that. So are, are you basically, can you kind of re- repeat that, that question? Because when you brought up scripture, I'm not really sure how, how you wanted me to uh, go about addressing that. Uh, yeah, my- so... Uh, the question again is, do you think it is intellectually virtuous uh, to reject an epistemic access device that gives you access to uh, things that uh, that if you don't have it, you got to do a lot of inductive uh, inferences in order to get to those explanations? And uh, mm-hmm. the, ac- uh, the epistemic access device that uh, you are uh, refusing to use in order to get access to uh, those uh, uh, solve those inductions, uh, mm-hmm. your uh, the epistemic access device is God in Scripture. Okay, so I don't think it's intellectually dishonest, but I would say it's not the best route to go because um, with this presupposing Scripture and things of that nature, we have in you know as far as using the inducted method of, of reasoning. Like I was talking about, you know, with Alan Goose theory of cosmic inflation, uh, even plate tectonics, you know, we have all these examples where using induction, abduction, principles in the philosophy of science and these theoretical virtues have a proven track record of explaining phenomena. And it's even in the academic literature that it's used in metaphysics uh, and now philosophy of religion as well. So, no, I have no problem with that. But I, I wouldn't call that dishonest. Um, well, I mean, um, I don't see how that is um, uh, exclusive to your view. I don't think that's exclusive at all. I think you would have to uh, prove that it is exclusive. I, I would say that you have to burden proof because I would uh, use um, abductive arguments, uh, deductive arguments, and induction in some cases. Why? Because I'm limited uh, to what we have revealed in Scripture. Uh, so I have my limitations too, and there's times that I got to do induction too. What I'm saying is that uh, my epistemic access which is God in the Bible, uh, pretty much just gives me a, a lot more uh, to work with. And uh, I guess uh, I, I, I would say, um, I wouldn't say it is irrational in a sense that like if you don't have an epistemic access device uh, on your side uh, to give you access to all this, I would say that um, the, uh, the evidentialist method actually gets you uh, pretty far. And that well, is not what I'm arguing. Actually, I agree with a, a lot of that. I'm just saying that it is a case that we do have an epistemic access device and it is immoral uh, uh, to not use it, and uh, if we're doing virtual epistemology, I would say there's a lot of ways in which these would not be uh, virtuous at all. Uh, okay, well, um, 
So, I mean, I can use the Bible too. I'm not rejecting that access point. Um, and, and again, I'm sympathetic to things like phenomenal conservatism. Um, uh, I hold to a uh, religious experience. Um, I, I think, you know, I have direct acquaintance with God, you know, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and again, that's the distinction I make between knowing God exists and then showing God exists. So this methodology that I'm approaching is for is, is specifically for discussions within within the dialect of the philosophy of religion and how we can make progress in the philosophy of religion when it comes to direct acquaintance with God and the reliability of of Scripture. Um, there's not a lot of disagreement with this. Um, you know, I I have that through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit as a born again Christian. I have Christ indwelling me. I have His experience. And, you know, things like when I read scripture, uh, many times the Holy Spirit will give me a message uh, for my life. So um, I'm, I'm not rejecting that. What I'm doing is I'm applying this, a meth- this as the best methodology for making, you know, productive arguments in the philosophy of religion. And it sounds like you agree with me there. Uh, I'm saying I'm, I'm saying that, yes, it is reliable to use all these things, but um, I, I would say uh, you're not using an epistemic access bias, which is uh, the Bible. So you're taking that away and starting uh, from yourself from uh, you start from you, then uh, direct acquaintance and uh, the rest of the the evidential case. But uh, so you're starting. Uh, I mean, uh, I use your, the Bible, too. I don't just presuppose it, you know. Well, uh, by presupposing, uh, I presuppose a lot of things. Uh, I actually presuppose your view too, and uh, and I'm saying that it doesn't have the same epistemic access I, as I as I do. So, uh, and I use the example of the soul, and I don't think that you have touched the example of the soul yet. Well, so I'm an idealist too. So with with the soul, I would hold something very similar that you know the universe at its most fundamental level is like information based. And, you know, there's sort of like an entanglement uh, within, you know, the information of the universe. Um, So, I mean, I I can get into that. I I just I don't see the relevance. Yeah, yeah, I I guess we can we can get into that because um, uh, I would say that in order to get your case going, as I mentioned, with the argument uh, from logic uh, of the uh, of the paper of uh, Greg Welty and uh, James Sanderson Mm -hmm. on on the uh, Lord of uh, Non-Contradiction. So uh, in their case pretty much they're saying that uh especially if you have an idealist position it works even better so uh you got to argue that um uh, the propositions uh are uh, truth bearers and there's uh they have the quality of necessity uh in them so if they have the quality of necessity and you believe in in uh, brute facts or or uh, uh I, I think you mentioned it uh before that you believe in brute facts so there's, i'm, I'm it, saying it's a possible e- explanation they can't be you, we can't can't just beg the question and say no that can't be the case that it is plausible it's just not the most probable and would and, you say um, that by the way you know um i'm acquainted with myself problem solved and you know i do use uh the bio it seems like you're just repeating yourself at this point uh, uh just repeating myself well i i don't think you have answered uh my objections well, uh, and another thing is that uh, what I was trying to go with the argument uh, of God from logic mm-hmm. is that um, I want to ask you if you believe that there is such thing as uh, necessary truths. Necessary truths, yes. Yeah, okay. And why are they necessary? 
because they they would it, it would be a modal claim they exist you know it's true in every possible world uh-huh okay but uh could it be the case that um that uh so, so okay, okay but uh so you're saying that it is well, necessary me, because uh, it would be absurd to think otherwise no, so I, I think this is kind of confusing necessary truth with necessary existence. I mean, the, the fact no. that logic is necessarily true, it doesn't follow that it necessarily exists. I mean, what about, you know, we can't beg the question against things like nominalism and, and, and so forth. That's not what I'm arguing for. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm actually going for the nature of... Uh, well, it of, seems uh, like you're also begging the question against Platonism. Why, why am I begging the question with Platonism? You're presupposing uh, this, this uh, uh, what is it, you know, this theistic framework in which, you know, logic, is, you know, exists in the mind of God. And there are other accounts that we can't just beg the question against. So, I mean, we're going to need a little more justification for that, I think. Yeah, let me just clarify well, uh, where I'm trying to go. So, uh, you believe that things are uh, uh, that there's such things that uh, necessary truths because uh, they uh, must exist in every possible world. So, why do they have to exist in every possible world? And the reason is is because, for example, if we uh, uh, we cannot imagine a possible world where a tree uh, 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 is a non-tree okay. and a tree at the same time. So, there's this absurdity. So. Uh, what I want, what I want you to uh, okay. to pretty much say is, if you believe that, will you believe it because uh, you believe that those are necessary truths because it is absurd to think otherwise. Here, well, here's the thing with that. Uh, I would make the distinction between necessary truth is not the same thing as necessary existence. How am I? You think I'm arguing for necessary existence? You seem to be confusing the two. Yes. Uh, how am I confusing them? You're, it seems like you're you're begging the question. Uh, I mean, it's come. It's how coming. how how am I begging the question? Like where? What am I doing that is fallacious? So like expand on it. Okay, so you know when you I, I've given you detailed answers to to these things, and I, I'm having a difficult time understanding where your objection to my view is is uh, in my epistemic justification. Like I said, you know, going back with scripture, I have you know, direct acquaintance, you know, in so much as the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and that I use this inductive methodology as being more parsimoniously favorable towards the philosophy of religion. So, again, I'm ha I'm, I'm having difficulty understanding where our... our well, I, first our, of all, I'm never arguing for... Uh, uh, it's not necessary existence. I'm arguing for uh, necessary truth. So why are they uh, necessary? And I'm saying it's because it is absurd uh, to think otherwise. Would you agree with that? This is the third time I asked the, the question. I wouldn't say that um, it's absurd. Uh, I think there are modal claims that, you know, something is true in every possible world. Um, it would depend on the claim and whether it's, you know. So, uh, okay, so if there's a, a there, there cannot be a tree that is not a tree in any possible world, why cannot there be a tree and non-tree in other possible worlds? Like, why? I'm asking you why. Because it is absurd, right? It would right, be a, so like uh, in other words, like a, a square circle is, you know, is false in every possible world. Yeah, and it is absurd, right? 
Yes. So you believe uh, in the necessity of propositions because of the absurdity of the contrary, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't have too much of a problem with that. Um, I just want to uh, make distinct, the distinction between necessary existence and, you know, necessary uh, truth. As long as we make well, that distinction, I'm fine with it. Well, my friend, I got to tell you that you are now a presuppositionalist because you just <laughs> accepted uh, an, a transcendental argument with the uh, uh, with a proposition. So the, I, I, what, I, what uh, James Anderson tries to go at and you just said it, you believe it is uh, true because of the absurdity of the contrary. Well, no, I, 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 it's true because it's analytic. And I mean, I could just make the same argument that with your uh, abating this idea of, you know, you, you can't, everything is absurd without God and using philosophy of science induction, uh, like metaphysical, grand meta, metaphysical theories of ultimate reality, you're on my side. So uh, uh, how am I on your side? I'm not sure I'm getting it. How am I on your side? Due to the fact that you're using principles of abduction, induction, philosophy of science, theoretical virtues, uh, did you grant uh, the, the the arguments to the contrary? You don't consider them logically absurd. You you actually would make an inference to the best explanation of which is more probable. That's my view. That's exactly what I do, and that's my methodology. Well, in my view, in my methodology, we assume the other people's, uh, the other person's position too. So, uh, what I'm trying to do with my presuppositionalist case is that I will assume uh, your position and show that under your own virtual epistemology standards, my position is better. Uh, and uh, there's a couple things that that you haven't answered. So, you you haven't answered why is it virtuous to reject uh, an epistemic access device, and now you admitted uh, that uh, in order to to have the necessity of uh, propositions that you argue for them transcendentally and that is essential for your case since well, in no. your, wait, wait, wait a second okay. um, uh, so in your case uh, uh, as I mentioned you have the oughtness problem what is ought uh, so, something that ought to be that has a uh, uh, truth uh, value in it so in order to get your case going, you need the problem of uh, you have the problem of oddness and you have the problem of the I of, uh, of what uh, uh, what is you. And for uh, for them, uh, for the problem of I, you argue inductively. So uh, I'm saying that the I and the oddness imply transcendental argumentation. Why? Because they uh, okay, could so be uh, formed in propositional values. So you got to argue transcendentally in order to get your case going. And if you got to argue transcendentally, then you're using my approach okay so um i i do uh use aspects of the transcendental argument but using transcendental arguments doesn't make you a presuppositionalist and i've already said that i don't reject that access point uh yeah but you you say that you don't reject it but uh when we do uh uh when we do our methods of apologetics you uh like the evidentialist in in very in a lot of cases, as I mentioned, the case of the soul, uh, or we can even do the resurrection case or some other uh, cases, uh, you have to argue that, oh, it is very probable that mm -hmm. God exists, or it is very probable, uh, almost certain that there's a soul, or uh, or it is uh, very probable, or there's a lot of evidence that the case of the resurrection right. is the case. So you got all these things that you got to say, oh, it is very probable. Oh, it well, is. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I, I do want to make a, a, a distinction and perhaps clear up some confusion. So 
in, in a phenomenal conservative type of approach, um, I do have direct acquaintance with God, with the inner, and I've said this, with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, such that uh, I can trust the reliability of Scripture. I can know that God exists, that Christ died for my sins. I have direct access to, to that. Um, I don't deny that. And um, when it comes to this methodology of using induction and probability in arguments for theism, as I said, I'm uh, making a distinction between knowing God exists and showing God exists and making fruitful dialogue in the philosophy of religion. So as a Christian who has the the presence of the Holy Spirit, um, I agree. I do have that direct acquaintance and reliability of Scripture. So I'm going to use this methodology as being more productive for discussions in philosophy of religion. Well, uh, first of all, so I want to say it's pretty good that you uh, are saying that. The problem is, is that uh, the evidentialists don't seem to be consistent with uh, what you're saying. And I, I would say it's not consistent. We're going to use some examples to show that you're not consistent with what you're just saying that um, uh, about uh, certainty of these things. So would you say that the resurrection um, uh, certainly happened uh would you say it certainly happened or would you say it very probably happened? Or uh, okay. can you explain to me further uh, to what degree of certainty do you have epistemic access to saying the resurrection indeed happened? Gotcha. So due to my phenomenal conservatism, I know for certain that Christ resurrected from the dead because I have direct experience with Christ. Now, when it comes to, probability and things of that nature uh, in regards to the resurrection, I would argue that uh, in, in terms of, you know, uh, like a cumulative case approach that it is more probable and likely, you know, given the, the methodology, you know, I would discuss with an unbeliever because my direct access, my inner witness of the Holy Spirit and personal relationship with Christ is not going to do very much uh, to convert the unbeliever. That's where I'm going to go to the probability and inductive philosophy of science. So things. you, so just to clarify, where do you put that probability exactly? Because uh, one of the things you said is that uh, you have direct acquaintance to Christ, and let's say uh, mm -hmm. we're talking about regeneration, but let's say uh, not because you have uh, direct acquaintance to something uh, means that. Um, you can expand it on, uh, on something else. So for example, I can have direct acquaintance that uh, with a satellite that there's a polar bear eating a fish in a, a specific hill in Alaska, but mm. not because I have a direct acquaintance with the, with the bear itself. Um, I don't know what that bear is necessarily thinking or what that bear, uh, what he ate uh, yesterday. Uh, I don't have direct acquaintance with that. So there's a limitation on, on what, you have direct acquaintance in uh, in your uh, regeneration. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, you can bring a direct acquaintance on a, a specific point uh, yeah. with uh, uh, knowing Christ. But uh, when it comes to the rest, to getting uh, to the facts of the uh, of the resurrection, you're arguing, oh, very probably it is true that he re resurrected. Yes. And that is yeah. my big problem, because in my view, I have epistemic an epistemic access device as God revealing uh, as God was there in the scene is revealing as a means of a, of a um, eyewitness testimony. It's being an epistemic access device to give us that information. So I have to okay. say that uh, it is a case that the resurrection happened and I'm using this device to, uh, to confirm it while you have to argue inductively over oh, probably the resurrection happened. That's my problem. 
Um, yeah, see, I, I see absolutely no problem with having, you know, direct acquaintance, epistemic knowledge of Christ that he resurrected and he uh, bodily indwells me. And uh, I have direct I- experience with him through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, prayer, reading scripture and things of that that nature. So I'm, I'm going to use this methodology, uh, as I said, to very modestly make progress in the philosophy of religion with discussions with uh, atheists who uh, are not going to simply accept my uh, my testimony, as, as it were. Even though I have direct acquaintance with God, I, I'm going to have to keep coming back to this. I make the distinction between knowing Christ resurrected and showing it, because when we show it, there's a certain criteria, uh, namely an inference to the best explanation. So I would say that, um, you know, to the skeptic and non-believer, that, uh, you know, you have, uh, like, you know, th- these facts, like, even if you want to go with the minimal facts, uh, you know, so you, you have competing explanations, but I would argue that the fact that Christ bodily rose from the resurrection offers an inference to the best explanation that he bodily rose from the dead. And I know that through my direct acquaintance with him. So there's no issue there. The uh, reason I'm using probability and induction uh, is specifically for discussions within the philosophy of religion and to make progress. Um, Whereas I I, I, I don't see much progress being made uh, otherwise in the philosophy of religion, because we, we have to think about, you know, the unbeliever and, reach out to them, you know, um, through a certain methodology. So just because I I know, you know, I I have knowledge of Christ doesn't mean that I I can't make an inductive probabilistic case of his resurrection with a skeptic. Okay. There's a couple points I want to respond to. So uh, one of them, you're saying that, oh yeah, we're going to be slowly getting more uh, information as the time passes by. But I want to ask you uh, again, going to epistemic access devices. uh, So let's say there is a monitor in front of me and uh, I'm saying, use your epistemic access device, which is the eyes, open your eyes and see the monitor. What you're trying to say is that, oh no, I'm not going to use that epistemic access device. So I'm going to very slowly very slowly uh, develop um, a case, not using that epistemic access device to argue that very probably there's a monitor in front of me. And I'm just saying, open your eyes, use the epistemic access device. That is one point that, uh, that, that I have. Well, I'm and using the epistemic device uh, for myself. It's for the unbeliever that it, it's going to be a better methodology. Do you understand that? Uh, say, say that again. I said uh, I'm using the epistemic device of opening my eyes and knowing it's true for myself. But when it comes to other people, skeptics and things of that nature, that's where I'm going to go inductive, probabilistic and make an inference to the best explanation. Uh, In other words, that it's reasonable and I can have both. I I, I don't have to have but the thing is, is that, oh, okay, you have direct acquaintance, but it's limited. So uh, when I bring, why, why is know, it wait, wait a second, no, someone interrupt me. So uh, when we were talking about the, uh, uh, the resurrection, you mentioned that you uh, argue for an inference to the best explanation using yes. uh, the, the case of Gary Harrimas. And I use that too. The difference, uh, what I'm trying to say, and well, which I'm making my case is that, yes, you cannot um, um, use, her an ep- uh, use an epistemic access device and then, uh, 
um, uh, confirm that uh, the internal coherence of that uh, of, of that information through um, other means, which uh, could be uh, abduction, deduction, or, mm -hmm. or induction. In this case, a deductive case. So I use the same case of uh, the minimal facts of Habermas. I use right. it too. But the thing is, I. Uh, I start from the epistemic access device and I use it as a means of um, proving for internal consistency of my epistemic access device. Well, you take off the epistemic access device and you simply argue for an infrastructure of best explanation. And I can use the same example with a, uh, with a camera. Um, so, or with, a, let's use my eye and the monitor. It's, it's easier. So, okay. Uh, so I have my eye and let's say uh, my eye, uh, uh, how it works is that light uh, comes in and the, uh, some parts of the eye process it and send the information. So I can argue that the best explanation is that, that um, I'm getting reliable um, uh, light information that is being reflected from the, uh, from the monitor into my eye. I can say that there we could be an there could be an inference to best explanation there, but um, it's inside uh, my case for using the eye as an epistemic access device, and uh, that is not what uh, what you're doing. You are not using the epistemic access device. You are arguing for. Uh, uh, like, like simply uh, the inference uh, to best explanation without the epistemic access device. And this is what I've been trying to say the whole conversation. No, and I disagree with that because, you know, you know, I could appeal to something like uh, phenomenal conservatism that like, let, let's take, you know, again, the example of the resurrection of Christ. Well, I'm epistemically justified in holding that uh, because, you know, I have that seeming and absent any overwhelming defeater or problem with that seeming, then I have a, a, an intern, you know, a justification of that without going that route. The reason I'm going that route is, again, that's uh, I find it more fruitful to make progress in the philosophy of religion. And you know, again, I'm not seeing any I understand you disagree with me, but I, I'm not seeing any inconsistency with that methodology. Uh, yeah, so uh, you're using an infra, let's say uh, you use an inference to the best explanation, and inferences to the best explanations uh, are contingent on the available amount of evidence. So if you have a certain amount of evidence, you use that evidence and see which one uh, corresponds to be the best explanation. The thing is, is that you don't have epistemic access to more uh, information that could change. Uh, how uh, the result of an inference to the best explanation. So you don't know if, if there's something more, if there's something less. So what I'm trying to say is that my epistemic access device does have access to much more information in order to make a better inference to the best explanation uh, rather than just doing a inference to the best explanation without knowing if there are other um, available facts to make that inference to the best explanation. Well, uh, again, uh, I, I would go back to, you know, my direct acquaintance uh, and then the fact that, you know, that as an internalist, you know, with phenomenal conservatism, that uh, I have a seeming that's justified absent any defeater. So I have a reason right there. And then in addition to that, for the uh, purpose of making progress in philosophy of religion, I can take this uh, methodology that has the proven track record in the philosophy of science and say, hey, look. It even offers the best, you know, explanation. And then if I need to, I can bring up, you know, that um, I have a seeming of the experience of the risen Christ and there there's not I can shoot down any overwhelming 
defeaters for that. So I can use my direct acquaintance and I can make, you know, probabilistic, you know, inductive arguments for the purpose of making progress in the philosophy of religion. And I have, uh, you know, that direct acquaintance. So again, not seeing a problem. No, uh, the, the, I would say there is a problem. And let, let me uh, use another example to, uh, to show this. So uh, let's say, uh, yeah, so of course, there's a lot of uh, an extremely valuable information from uh, uh, all from the case that uh, an evidentialist presents, and I will mm-hmm. use the same thing for uh, other stuff. The the problem is is that you're not using the epistemic access device. And let me show this with a uh, uh, with something for the let's say for the resurrection or something for the first century. Okay. So let's say we start from direct acquaintance, then uh, reliability of memory, then uh, um, or not even reliability of memory. So at the moment, uh, if it's the direct acquaintance at the moment, I guess yeah. it doesn't play until uh, if you're trying to look back in the past or uh, inductively okay. in the future. But okay, so uh, what I'm trying to say is that, for example, yeah, yes, you can use the whole methodology, um, uh, analyticity, and use induction later on. But the okay. thing is, is that um, uh, if you're trying to argue for something of the first century, uh, you use the epistemic access devices that you have available, which in this gotcha. case would be the um, the first century uh, writer. So let's say uh, uh, Pliny the Younger had access to the first century. Right. Uh, the Gospels have access to the first century. Uh, the uh, 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 Tacitus had access to the, the first century. Josephus had access mm-hmm. to the first century. So they, their testimony is historically your epistemic access device. So yes, okay. your whole case is... Um, uh, so, so yes, it is cool to use all of that process that we already mentioned, but mm-hmm. I'm saying that you are not using those epistemic access devices, which will be the first century to- uh, uh, scholars, uh, uh, the first century, sorry, uh, uh, historical characters mm-hmm. in order to use a testimony to make a case for the resurrection will be an, an equal value to what I'm trying to say that, there, those are I epistemic mean, access devices, and I'm using God and Scripture as an epistemic access device, and you are not using it. Okay, and, and so uh, I, I want to disagree with you there, and I, I want to explain why I disagree with you there. So, number one, I do have uh, the direct uh, acquaintance, um, you know, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, such that, you know, I know God and Christ, the reliability of Scripture. And uh, if I want to put myself in the position of a first, you know, uh, like, let's say the first century Israel uh, and everything, uh, as I've already mentioned, I could use a phenomenal, my appeal to my phenomenal conservatism that I have a seeming of experiencing the risen Christ. And the, uh, there's not going to be absent, overwhelming defeaters. And so I can justify that. And then I can likewise use my method in today's society of, you know, using it in the philosophy of religion. So I don't think that responds to it. And I think we're going in circles because I will respond the same way I've been responding the the whole time. So Uh, Eddie, do you want to chime in? Do you have any like questions, clarifications, anything? No, um, seems like you guys agree far more than you I, 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 was, I was i was surprised i'm like dude are you on my side or am i am on your yeah. side so like, yeah so no israel. as a presuppositionalist i'm assuming your position so what, what i've been saying the whole time is not about just assuming my position i assume yours and it seems like i argue like you because i'm assuming your position and using your own standards to say that my case is better 
Um, and and I, I don't see how that was justified because, you know, again, you know, using transcendental arguments doesn't make you a pre- presuppositionalist. I have direct acquaintance with Christ through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I have phenomenal conservatism where I can appeal to the, this epistemically without, uh, you know, uh, appealing to induction, abduction and everything. And I also have the extra ability of being able to use philosophy, principles from the philosophy of science, like uh, inductive ab- abductive reasoning. So, um, so, uh, so uh, where where I uh, disagree is that um, uh, Gordon H. Clark, uh, when he argues for um, um, uh, for the ad hominem argument within the Bible, is about um, taking the other positions, the other person's positions, uh, and showing the internal inconsistencies. Then taking your position and uh, showing that it is reliable. And if when it comes to transcendental arguments, it's doing the same thing. So it is the presuppositionalist approach. Why? Because uh, how I mentioned, if something is true uh, by necessity mm. and I ask you, why is it true by necessity? You have to say that um, because the otherwise it will be absurd. So you would take the other uh, non-necessity um, non uh, explanations and they will, they will be absurd. So you take the necessity explanation and you see that it is internal existence. So it is uh, ad hominem argumentation, which is what I've been trying to say that is the right form of the Bible. So transcendental argumentation okay. is presuppositionalism. Here's a clarification that might help clear this up and why appealing to certain aspects of transcendental arguments do not imply um, presuppositionalism. Because what I'm using is um, this idea of a grand metaphysical theory of ultimate reality. So I'm using a, a theory of ultimate reality that it has as- aspects of, you know, transcendental arguments. It just favors a more inductive philosophy of science approach. And so one does not have to be a presuppositionalist to use aspects of the transcendental argument. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just going to say the same thing. It resembles what I mentioned, the ad hominem argumentation, since you take and one position and you take the other one when it's absurd, not the other one. So it's it's kind of uh, presuppositionalistish. <laughs> let me ask Let me ask a couple questions here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's go on the Q&A. Yeah. yeah. So Israel, when you are you I think that you mean um, <clears throat> reductio ad absurdum, not ad hominem. Is you're trying to show the absurdity of the position, right? Um, not necessarily. So, um, yes, um, of course, in presuppositionalism, when it comes to the assuming the other person's uh, hypotheses, you do your best to try uh, to argue for a reductio ad absurdum. And while I believe that uh, you can reduce the other person's um, uh, uh, position to absurdity, uh, it's, it is not necessarily the case that it has to be reduced to absurdity. It could be just that uh, it is a better uh, hypothesis. So, uh, but in this case, if uh, virtue epistemology is true and uh, we use the same uh, facets that, that he used and we uh, show that it is not virtuous and is not using an epistemic access device and doesn't have the same explanatory scope or power than my explanation has, then um, I would say maybe it might be reduced uh, to absurdity because it's kind of like contradicting the uh, the virtuousness of the virtuous epistemology. So, so yeah, here, here's here's the thing that might help kind of second. clarify this. Because right, hold on one second. <clears throat> hold on one second. I just want to get this clarified first. Um, because typically an ad hominem is a personal attack and dismissing the argument based on the person's yeah. character or something like that. So 
that's why I was wondering what you meant by ad hominem. Uh, mm. it, it, it just, I was a little confused with that. Even though there, I know fallacies have a lot of deep distinctions a lot of times. So uh, yeah, if you could clarify that. Yeah, but actually you can find this uh, clarification in the Trinity Foundation's uh, lectures of Cornish Clark and John W. Robbins. Uh, in their work, they explain uh, to not be confused with the ad hominem fallacy. And I, I guess I should have been clear. So I, I guess I'll put okay. that in, in my fault. So when it comes to, uh, there's a difference between the ad hominem fallacy <clears throat> and ad hominem argumentation. And I'm using the Clarkian perspective of of ad hominem argumentation, which is uh, taking both uh, or, or several uh, hypotheses and testing them for internal uh, coherence. So it, it is the wording that literally Clark uses, ad hominem argumentation, and it is what uh, presuppositionalists use, uh, maybe, maybe not all, but yeah, it is what Clark uses. And uh, uh, it is different from the ad hominem fallacy, which, yeah, it's a personal attack. Yeah, I just, just I wanted you to make that clear in the distinction mm-hmm. because... Um, you know, there's so <clears throat> just real quick for the audience, there's categories of fallacies, then there's the fallacies, and then there's intricacies with the fallacies. And just because it's typically levied as a fallacy doesn't mean it's necessarily fallacious. Uh, so it's, you know, um, a lot of times inference can lead to um, the composition division fallacy, but it's an inference that you make a leap on. It's not always fallacious, you know, to have that type of inference. But Travis, you wanted to respond to something, then I had a question for you. Uh, go, go ahead and go with your question. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So um, with phenomenal conservatism, mm-hmm. uh, you have to start with uh, a foundation, you know, like foundationalism, the kind sure. of presuppositionalism. I think it's um, – Incorrigible beliefs, incorrigible beliefs. Um, So how would you respond to a presuppositionalist with the fact that you start with those axioms or or those incorrigible uh, beliefs? Um, I I see it as a a commonality that that I can use, you know, a, a similar method and I have a wider scope of being able to incorporate that method of using phenomenal conservatism while also being able to go the probabilistic adductive route and everything. And so I see it as um, having a wider scope, uh, even if, you know, we, we don't know, you know, we might disagree a little bit on the methodology, but we, I don't think we disagree in principle on this direct issue of direct acquaintance. Okay. Um, And then Israel on your position, when you say that you're a presuppositionalist, what exactly are you presupposing uh, specifically in order to have intelligibility or, or knowledge or uh, things of this nature? What do you think it is that we have to presuppose? Uh, well, uh, so as I mentioned before, it is not just about presupposing our position. It's about presupposing uh, competing hypotheses too. So what I'm saying is that I presuppose the other hypotheses. We see that they don't have the same explanatory scope as a as my hypotheses. Uh, well, that would be just one thing, but um, yeah. So what I'm presupposing is God as a uh, epistemic axis device, uh, uh, basically transcendentally um, that. Um, 
yeah, basically uh, transcendentally, and then uh, from arguing uh, transcendentally for the existence of God, um, the Bible being our uh, epistemic access that uh, God is granting to us. So um, a, in Clarkian versus uh, Bantillian literature, uh, Clark puts uh, the scripture as an axiom. So uh, uh, in Bantill puts it the other way around. So uh uh, so Clark starts with scripture and then argues transcendentally uh, towards God and until uh, argues transcendentally, then scripture. I would say even though I uh, like Clark and stuff much more, I would say that I fall more into the uh, until and stuff. And, uh, but, but yeah, that's, that, that, that's what we're presupposing that uh, the, that the intelligible experience comes from arguing uh, transcendentally using God as an epistemic access device. Okay. And Travis, uh, just to make it even two questions a piece and I'll go to the audience questions. Um, Just kind of a thought that I had, it may not make a whole lot of sense, but with phenomenal conservatism, um, it's based on seemings. Uh, Yes. You know, what seems to be true to you in the absence of defeaters is you're Mm -hmm. just at least a weak justification. uh, Right. right. Um, If the presuppositionalists, it seems to them that we need to presuppose certain things. Uh, are they not justified in their position uh, if it seems to them that that's how we ought to approach it? Yes, um, I, I do think they're justified. I just uh, I, I tend to like really emphasize uh, this distinction of, you know, knowing God is, exists versus showing God exists. And I think the advantage that the phenomenal conservatist will have is you can kind of put this out as, uh, you know, it, it's epistemically justified, you know, from a foundationalist internalist perspective that, um, you know, you could even see it as like, let's say the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is a form of evidence itself. Um, and so I, I think it has, um, it's a little more favorable, but uh, no, I, I certainly wouldn't object to the presuppositionalist, you know, presupposing God. It's just, the way they would argue to the skeptic about it, that I don't think is the best methodology. All right. We have a few questions from, or sorry, did you want to respond? To uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would say like being extremely charitable. I think there's some truth into that. I would say that uh, usually presuppositionalists can use uh, very ambiguous uh, explanations whenever they're um, arguing with a, with a skeptic. So yeah, I would say, I would say uh, it is sometimes problematic the way they uh, uh, explain things. So, yeah, I would say problem. usually it's explanation. It's just sometimes not very clear. And I see a lot of non-presuppositionalists kind of lost whenever they mm. they uh, hear an explanation from a presuppositionalist. That's why I put it in a more uh, simple form of an epistemic access device to kind of like have it more, uh, like more acquainted as we have ever, epistemic access devices everywhere. Yeah, it, it took me a while to catch on to where you were going with that. I was like, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, no so worries. We have a few audience questions, and uh, most well, from of David them. David Talman, I see. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, one no. of mostly from one person. Uh, and most of them are for. I don't want to answer those. I was just kidding. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's because I bombarded him with uh, super chats one time. He had a, a discussion with. Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay. Josh so Pillows, payback, so, huh? so he's uh, doing oh, payback, but now with like 20 comments. I just did three, David. Chill. <laughs> okay, so the first one's going to be to Travis, and this is just to try to even it out a little bit. Okay. Can we submit questions yet? 
Yes, what standard? <laughs> you, you may now uh, uh, submit questions. So, I uh, in, so sure. in fairness, uh, I want uh, Travis. I'd like you to answer these questions too after Israel does. Yeah, so yeah, that's not all. That, I, I like that format. Yeah, like right. he'll answer, and then I'll, I'll kind of give my take on it too. So, Israel, uh, if Scripture gives epistemic access to truth, what gives us epistemic access to the truth of Scripture? Well, uh, we analyze it, uh, uh, the internal consistency of it. So we use all sorts of methods that I agree a lot with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the what the evidentialist uses, so I would use uh, an extremely similar approach, but I would use it more in a confirmatory fashion rather than as a method of of uh, gaining truth. So, as I mentioned, with the example of an epistemic access device, if I'm uh, trying to have epistemic access to a polar bear in Alaska eating a fish in a specific hill, uh, rather than um, having arguments. Uh, being uh, like like getting there starting from zero, I start from my epistemic access device and then confirm that experience uh, through all the other methods, uh, uh, which uh, is what we already mentioned several times. Okay, so um, yeah, the, the way I, I would look at this is um, uh, if scripture uh, gives epistemic access to truth, what gives us e epistemic access to the truth of scripture? This is where I would appeal to the uh, inner witness of the Holy Spirit, um, you know, through something like phenomenal conservatism. Uh, an example is uh, a lot of times, like, you know, when I, I'm reading scripture, especially in the New Testament, there'll be like a, a passage that just really jumps out at me and and just bears witness with my spirit uh, and, and and everything. And so um, I, I don't have a problem with, you know, kind of kind of the way Israel approaches that here's where i make my distinction um i think uh you know that that's internally consistent for myself because the inner witness the, the inner witness of the holy spirit and uh through phenomenal conservatism i could make an argument that i'm epistemically justified in holding that belief but i would not go so far as to argue with the skeptic based on that uh epistemic justification I don't think it's sufficient to, to use that as a form of argumentation. Okay. All right. You're, this is for you first, Travis. <laughs> when will Israel debate David Palman? <laughs> uh, oh, man. I don't know. I will take a, a couple. Oh, wait. You say for Travis? For, I don't know how to. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> you say for Travis first, right? Okay. Uh, we're going to set this up for next Saturday at 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> That's between y'all, but he did want to uh, point out that uh, this is something he specializes in, and he's wanted to debate you, but you chose to debate a science major who just looks at, you know, uh, I study atmospheric science, and you wanted to debate me, but not David Palmas. I think that's what he's getting at, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, he's pretty good. I actually like um, in my preparation because I know he's your friend. And uh, when we were, oh, uh, man, like, we've known each other Facebook, like four years. Yeah. Yeah. When, when uh, I was, uh, when we were talking like in, in uh, Facebook, uh, you told, like, we, we saw like he was going to be in your corner and I was like, oh, he's going to use Palman stuff. So, yeah, I actually use a lot of Palman stuff to uh, prepare for uh, my, uh, for my case. So uh, I, I would say, um, actually, like, Palman, like, changed a lot of my, 
uh, of my views. So I want to thank him for that. And I want to just uh, give it a shout out that uh, he's pretty good and he's been pushing me to uh, get better in my presuppositionalism. So, um, no, I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, he's pretty good. So I don't know when I would say I want to take a couple more months because I know there's a lot more stuff that we didn't get, get into. I, I wanted to get into more like get your problems to show uh, my, my position a little bit better. Um, but yeah, we didn't get into that. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, I don't know, I would take some more months to, uh, to prepare for David because he's pretty good. Yeah, uh, man, uh, David is a really good friend of mine. But uh, interestingly, him and I have a lot of disagreements. We disagree on probably about 50% of everything. So I love him. He's my friend, but we disagree on a lot also. So. Well, that's all the best friendships. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, Israel... It has been pointed out that Anderson and Welty's argument confuses necessary truth with necessary existence. How do you respond? Uh, well, I would like to know more about that critique because, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of uh, um, Travis called me a little bit of guard. So I don't know if he wants to explain the first and may, maybe uh, I uh, develop our response because, yeah, I'm not. Well, uh, I, just, I wanted to know the, ju- the justification of how one necessarily entails the other. It seems like a categorical uh, error. So I, I wanted the justification that, you know, uh, that necessary truth is the same as necessary existence. What's the justification for that? And I didn't really get a satisfactory answer. Do you, what is your position on necessary truth and necessary existence? Uh, well, um, kind of like how uh, he gets to something being uh, necessary truths, um, uh, I would say it goes by starting from uh, where, uh, like about the nature of propositions, since uh, they cannot be contingent, you cannot put it as uh, as something emergent, because uh, if you put it as a uh, as a thought, like why is it corresponding to someone else's thought uh, down the street or in China or whatever? So uh, you cannot put it as as a as a person's. Uh, as emerging from a a specific mind of a person or emerging from uh, uh, something in reality, because if you get something else in reality that shares the same uh, uh, property, then it is not emerging from that. Uh, it's it, it's uh, independent of that because it's not. Um, yeah, it, it's basically independent of that. So if it's independent and uh, it. Um, um, I guess we get to existence uh, when it comes to proving they are thoughts and then going from uh, they are thoughts to thoughts are uh, part of a being. And uh, if it's a being, uh, it has some of the qualities that uh, that God has. So I would say it's a little bit hard to try to argue from them for existence. Uh, I wouldn't say I would. Uh, make a deductive argument about it, but more of a transcendental argument about it. So if they're not um, uh, like transcendental by saying that it will be absurd not to think that they are uh, non-existent. So I would use transcendental argumentation to solve that problem. Not sure if it will, but um, a little bit kind of coward, but yeah, thank you, David, for the question. So what is your position on it, Travis? Uh my position is um, so I have you know with, with uh, regards to this I have a, a theory um, you know grand metaphysical theory of, of ultimate reality and so um, I use Rasmussen's uh, a lot of Rasmussen's argument for necessary existence I just 
I, I, I'm not uh, really getting the the clarification of how one necessarily entails the other. And it kind of seems to be confusing the two, like using one as though the other. And I'm, I was just curious on, on, on the, the justification for that. Yeah. I, so the reason I asked is because I was going to it seemed like you weren't sold on uh, necessary truths entailing necessary existence. And I was actually going to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was going to transcendentally. I justified transcendentally the absurdity of the contrary. Yeah. It's uh, well, that's what I was going to say is uh, Rasmussen, as you brought up, argues that uh, necessary truths uh, entail necessary existence. Um, well, and, I, I would use that in sort of like a, a metaphysical theory of ultimate reality. Not, not really, you know, uh, that's why I, I use aspects of the transcendental argument, but I use it as uh, in theory choice, like metaphysical theory of ultimate reality based on the theoretical virtues in the philosophy of science and everything. So that's how I would kind of go. Okay, Travis, can you recommend some books on philosophy of religion? Yes, um, for like a, a really good, you know, argument. Uh, for the atheist position, uh, arguing, you know, about gods by Oppie, I, I think is really good. Um, I think uh, if you're really, you know, getting started in philosophy of religion, you want to kind of uh, rise above this, you know, apologetics uh, and, and get more into more into the heart of the philosophy of religion, where the real intellectual discussion is at. Um, a good starter for that is How Reason Can Lead to God by Joshua Rasmussen. It's kind of like I, I brought up in my argument. And here's one reason why I really like that approach, because, you know, he'll say that, you know, absolute perfection, you know, with purely positive qualities is uh, going to be the most parsimonious, ex simplest and, you know, parsimonious explanation of, you know, ultimate reality. And then he'll bring up things like, you know, uh, the applicability of mathematics being true is more parsimonious as coming from a foundational source that is itself intelligent and, you know, like, like I argued for. And so it shows how using reason can lead to God. And um, it, it kind of opens the door for uh, connecting the various other arguments, like, you know, like, let's say you want to use the, the argument from mathematics or uh, the argument from fine tuning, uh, the contingency argument, they, they can all be kind of unified in the perfect foundation argument. I love that book. What about you, Israel? Do you have any recommendations? Um, no, I mean, Paul, uh, you recommend something to Paulman and he's already read it and other 10 related uh, books about it. He's <laughs> got a huge library. Like, I don't think I, well, but there's I other people something that he hasn't though, read so. before. <laughs> but, yeah, there's uh, other people uh, that listen, though. So <laughs> let me guess. Yeah, so, uh, something I, I guess more, most of, uh, <laughs> I'm a jack of all trades. So some of uh, uh, what I've been reading is uh, more of a uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern history, uh, Catholicism, because in Latin America, there's a lot more stuff about, like, like there's not much of a, of a atheism versus theism debates like over there like the huge big deal it's like catholicism versus protestantism that's a huge deal so i've been trying to uh prepare more on that and when it comes to um, um atheists making uh uh the the case in latin america like they're always like a new atheist so it doesn't require that much philosophy to review them to be honest like they're terrible atheists in latin america like they're much uh, more advanced over here i gotta say that uh, israel can i ask you a question about that yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, how familiar are you with the actual philosophy of religion? Um, 
in other words, like rising above this, just apologetics. Um, I'm not a huge fan of apologetics. Uh, like, you know, presuppositionalist, even like, you know, a, a lot of like the evidential apologists, I'm not a big fan of. My preferred methodology is the Swinburnian method of a grand metaphysical theory of ultimate reality and a perfect foundation that can kind of open the door and, and everything. Uh, just for, you know, from what you, you've said, um, I, I'm curious, have you studied a lot of like actual philosophy of religion? Uh, yeah. So when it comes to epistemology, like um, I've been actually using a lot of secular uh, sources, like even like more than uh, than Christian uh, sources. But, um, but but yeah, I do have books from Josh Rasmussen. I do have books from uh, J.P. Moreland. Uh, I uh, do have uh, one of uh, Graham Uh I do have some stuff from top scholars. And uh, so uh, James Anderson. Uh, I, so, so yeah, I, I do have uh, stuff from them. It's just that I would love to get more uh, into it because I don't think uh, like what mostly of all how I educate myself, it's through uh, university lectures that, uh, that are available online. So uh, yeah, one concern um, I, I, I had um, with, with your approach and your critique of my approach um, is that you would seem to almost reject the, the whole discipline of the philosophy of religion as, as not being a, an appropriate methodology uh, of arguing for God. And that's where the most be meaningful dialogue comes from. That's how countless people have been won to Christ through these powerful philosophical arguments. Um, and it, it just kind of, it kind of seems that what you've argued tonight would dismiss the entirety of mm. philosophy of religion. No, no, uh, I do have a uh, holding very high regard uh, philosophy of religion, and I do try my best to uh, uh, to be educated on that. Okay. The thing is that uh, I, I don't see how uh, my approach uh, rejects any of that. Like uh, a lot of my case uh, was built on a, on a lot of what James Anderson and Greg Welty had to say. So uh, I well, use them as, as my more main of like sources in my whole case. What's up? Yeah, I, I understand, you know, Wealthy and, and Anderson, but um, I'm thinking more of like, you know, like taking, you know, like what, like the Swinburnian method, uh, you, you would reject that as a whole, that you would reject uh, Rasmussen's uh, perfect foundational uh, approach. Um, it just seems to me that you reject the methodology, uh, the main methodology used in the philosophy of religion. And that kind of seems problematic to me. Although uh, I do have a lot of respect for Wilty and Anderson, but we have some really top contenders in the, of the philosophy of religion. And you're saying that their methodology is extremely flawed, like Swinburne. I mean, he's one of the most highly respected well, philosophers me, of religion. I'm not, so I'm not saying it's extremely flawed. I'm saying that I uh, I actually uh, use a lot of reasoning from people that are evidentialists or, or classical apologists. I use uh, some of the reasoning. The thing is that I do uh, introduce uh, transcendental argumentation and the uh, presuppositionalism within uh, my use of their stuff. And I start with that. I start with the uh, uh, with scripture, and then from there, uh, uh, complemented with the uh, literature and philosophy of religion. So, and I, I think it's a weird push. I mean, it's uh, representing uh, uh, cases here, and uh, I, I think there, there was a lot of things unanswered that uh, went on, on your case. Uh, so, well, I, if 
if uh, I'm doing something wrong, well, uh, kind of point it out in the day, you know? <laughs> yeah, let me, yeah, yeah. So let me say this. We have a few questions. We're coming up on two hours. We have a few questions left. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we still got to do closings. So let's try to keep the um, comments as pithy as possible. And I did want to say this, uh, Travis, okay. I, I don't necessarily agree um, mm-hmm. that or it's fair to say that Israel rejects uh, philosophy of religion based on his position. I know several presuppositionalists who are mm-hmm. very well versed in Swinburne and uh, other okay. epistemologists and um I don't think that that's uh, really one that's conducive to the uh, debate. Uh, okay. But anyway, let's uh, let's see. We got, of course, another one for Israel. Uh, <laughs> why does the internal consistency or coherence of Scripture indicate that it is reliable or true? Can't false claims be internally consistent? Uh, okay, let me let me see if I get what I'm saying. So, uh, well, I guess um, some of what we do is we argue transcendentally. So, uh, it is if uh, we we use that approach. So, we use uh, the Bible, we use uh, God as an epistemic access device. So, if it's internally uh, uh, reliable, and we assume that position, do we get uh, coherence? If we assume a non-epistemic uh, uh, access device with God in Scripture, do we get coherence? I would say uh, we get a lot of problems for not using the epistemic access device. So, uh, uh, I, so what he's trying to say is, uh, so you can apply the same global skepticism. So, I don't know if he's trying to apply global skepticism in my in my case. So. Uh, basically saying that, okay, it's an epistemic access device, but how do we know that um, there, there's not a, a rigorous of gods or a brain and vet that is controlling this God? Or like, how do you know it is actually true? And uh, I would say um, in a lot of these cases, uh, in order to know if, if it's true, you will have to be outside of the bounds of, uh, of what God has access to. But the thing is that in order to create all of these um, uh, scenarios of, of brains and bats or uh, uh, rigorous of gods or whatever uh, that could falsify the, uh, the God uh, that we're experiencing, um, they would need to use the loss of logic in order to uh, use that. So uh, some of what um, Anderson and Welty uh, try to argue in their <clears throat> argument from logic is that even in those global uh, skepticism scenarios, you gotta use, uh, you you gotta um, assume the uh, the the necessity, uh, the necessary truths of propositions in order to get those um, uh, global skepticism hypotheses going. So. I cannot go farther than what God has access to. So uh, as I mentioned before, scripture is my limit and what God reveals to me is my limit. So if there's a rigors of God, I don't know, but I, I would think, say it's very improbable because um, they would require the uh, the necessary truths of uh, propositions and depend on our logic in order for them to take off. So it'll be extremely problematic if that was the case. Okay. Next one. <clears throat> From Ben Watkins. Um, ben, hey. We'll let Travis answer first, let you catch your breath, Israel. Um, how do you both approach 
satisfactory solutions to the intellectual problem of evil, i.e. the tension between the existence of evil, sin, and suffering on the one hand and God on the other. Okay, so um, Ben and I are really good friends, but he is not going to like my answer. Um, I, I'm i very sympathetic to Brian Davies' argument um, that God, I'm a classical theist, so God is not a moral agent who is under obligation. So I think God intends only the good, and he permits the evil, and he simply permits it for uh, a greater good. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I take Davies' approach that um, it, it's a, sort of a categorical mistake to classify God as a moral agent under various obligations. That's similar to Van Imwagen. If I think Van Imwagen says that if God can't actualize a world with free will and um, without evil, then he has no obligation to prevent what seems to be gratuitous evils. Right. And, uh, and so I, I would say that he only intends the good and that, you know, let's say the evil that comes, he permits it, but he doesn't intend it. He only intends the greater good and there will be a greater good from the evil. Israel. Yeah. So um, I use the uh, theodicy of uh, soul building. I don't use the theodicy of free will, but um, I don't think it's possible. I think uh, it's very problematic to use uh, free will. I'm a self-determinist. But um, so uh, with the theodicy of of uh, soul building, I would say uh, part of it is that whatever evil we are experiencing is uh, because for a greater good. And some of the problems, whenever people bring the problem of evil, is they bring um, uh, they bring false analogies in order to prove that. So uh, they will uh, bring analogies like uh, is uh, okay if God caused it, like uh, um, but that put uh, put a robot and then programmed you to uh, um, to chop someone's head and uh, then say okay you are responsible. Uh, so if he put free will or if he put a determinist uh, position, whatever it is, he put uh, a certain form of a of an algorithm in there. The problem is is that with using this type of of analogies within the um, uh, problem of evil are false because uh, in the scriptural uh, position, you get a uh, good intentionality, you get a good process, and a and a good um, uh, and, and a good ending. And uh, some some of the way to put it, uh, I forgot the name of this uh, scholar, but uh, he was arguing that um, uh, you gotta see more more of a, more of a uh, existence uh, uh, more as a, as a novel rather or a narrative rather than a a uh, uh, like a simulation. So the difference between that, uh, it's kind of hard to put um, something being evil if you put it as a, as a novel or as an analogy. So we can use uh, the Avengers as, uh, as a team Strider made them popular <laughs> debate. So uh, we can use a, an Avengers analogy on how uh, the creator of Avengers uh, puts a, a, a good intention on mm. how the whole story is going to be unfolding. Uh, so good intention, good process. Yes, there's evil within the story. There's characters that do have evil uh, within the story. In this case, would be Thanos um, or whatever um, uh, other villains there are. Um, and then there's a good resolution of that evil being defeated and greater good being uh, uh, placed forward. So it's uh, it has a lot of resemblance to the a theodicy of of uh, 
<clears throat> soul building. And uh, I would say it is uh, scriptural too. So, but yeah, I don't think he cares about the scriptural part. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Tim's uh, analogy <laughs> with cool Dr. Guy. Strange and uh, Molinism. Yeah. Better. That's, um, uh, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I do. I, as a Molinist, I'm a little uh, partial to it. So. I'm no. I'm actually more on the compatible side now, Eddie. But uh, and I don't want to. I know we're at the two hour mark. But I was wondering if you've heard uh, Kirk McGregor's uh, theodicy of the ir- irrelevance of gratuitous evil. That you know, it, it's because uh, I'm also uh, sim- you know uh, sympathetic. While I prefer Davies, uh, you know, he has this this argument that you know God necessarily maintains a certain epistemic distance. Uh, from us so we can make free moral choices in a moral theater, theater, you know, to, in sort of a, a soul building type scenario. Uh, and it's Molinistically, um, I don't really hold it myself, but I was wondering if you've heard of that. And if so, what you think about it? Uh, well, I actually argue like uh, very similarly. So I, I would say that in, in my uh, Calvin's position. So yes, th- there's distinctions on, uh, on uh, the role of causality between uh, God, uh, between the natural circumstance and the uh, uh, human circumstance. So uh, uh, God hardened first heart. Um, you got uh uh, the situation hardened Pharaoh's heart, and and the uh, Pharaoh hardened uh, his own heart. So, in a sense, uh, there's a way in the novel, uh, if you're looking at it as a way of a novel, that uh, if you put it as a, uh, <clears throat> um, if if you put the novel as a, uh, say, uh, as as evil as a lack of godness, as a lack of goodness, as as a lack of the will of God. So in the in the novel, so let's say there's this. Uh, uh, there's this uh, uh, ways that the, the, the will of how the per- people ought to act in the Avengers novel. So let's say they are not to kill. So they assume because, you know, if Thanos is the able guy, you are not to kill uh, within the, the story. But uh, you do have it in the story. So the, uh, they, the characters would be experiencing, um, in, in this case, a non-godly or non-God's will uh in the narrative so i would say it's pretty similar to uh to what i try to argue uh for making my case okay and i'll remind you guys again let's shorten them just a little bit on the yeah i'm getting i'm not gonna lie man i'm getting tired (laughs) yeah so uh we've had a lot of questions fly in at the last minute so i might have to be selective Is, is that from ben yeah this is from ben would israel agree that evidence must be conceived of probabilistically? And if so, is there a transcendental argument from probability theory to the God of the Bible? Uh, well, I would say for some evidence, uh, yeah, because I, as I mentioned, I have limitations, even though if I argue transcendentally, I'm limited to what scripture is telling me. So, uh, and I'm limited to what uh, God can tell me, but uh, I mean, now we will get on what limitations that God have. And of course, I mean, if he's omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, it will be kind of hard to uh, put limitations on him. But uh, yeah, so I would use probability in, uh, but more in a confirmatory sense, I wouldn't use it as uh, starting from zero with a non-epistemic access device and then build it from there. No, I would start from the epistemic access device and then um, argue for the uh, internal consistency using probabilistic arguments in some cases, uh, in, in some cases, just not all of them. Okay. 
<clears throat> How do you ground that position? No, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> Under what standard? <laughs> Under what standard? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I got to give my shots at the Discord and uh, Clubhouse uh, pre-subs. Uh, I think they need to come listen to you more because uh, you give a lot better position than most of them do. Um, yeah, uh, we actually uh, agree on, on so much. Um, yeah. Oh, means a lot, guys. Thank you. Yeah. So if you can sum this up <laughs> briefly, Travis, what is virtue epistemology? Okay, so it's a new position that uh, I've heard, heard, and what I've gotten from it is that it, it places um, – Virtue on you know you know on uh, intellectual virtue as you know being the ground or, or foundation of epistemic knowledge. Uh, that's you know so um, I'm very new to the position. Uh, it was actually recommended to me by David Pullman. Uh, I, I lean more. In fact, that's why you'll notice that um, I wanted to change the title like several times. Um, I lean a lot closer, you know, towards phenomenal conservatism, especially from my uh, religious epistemology. Uh, but from what I understand of virtue epistemology, you know, it places, you know, uh, high value and in intellectual virtues. And the reason I adopt that is because I, high, uh, I hold the theoretical virtues in theory choice in a high regard as the preferred methodology and the philosophy for making progress in the philosophy of religion. But, you know, when it comes to this, you know, access point and everything, and I understand the confusion, but uh, in that aspect, I'm a phenomenal conservatist. And so, you know, I have this direct acquaintance with God. And uh, something like like uh, quite interesting is that uh, I didn't know that you were going to argue for British epistemology until the last week, until there was a, a week from the, the debate. And I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to start studying British epistemology. And I struggled to find freaking sources for that. Like <laughs> from, from, from what I gather from it, uh, it places, you know, <laughs> the, you know, intellectual virtue is like, you know, a good grounding of, you know, a foundation for epistemic knowledge. And where I connect the dots on that is my high regard for the theoretical virtues. But then I also have this issue where my religious epistemology is going to be on, on the phenomenal conservative side uh, and everything. Yeah, you should change oh. your religious epistemology to reformed epistemology. <laughs> so I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, sorry. come on. Yeah, proper functionalism for the win. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it was. Uh, I, I can tell it's a new, uh, a new position because it was pretty hard. Like I was asking everywhere, hey, do you know like uh, any uh, sources for this? And they're like, nah, bro, no, nah, I don't know any sources. So it was pretty freaking hard. But uh, yeah, I found some stuff, and I actually uh, I find a lot of value with it, like a lot of it. So I would say uh, it's uh, pretty cool. But I would say it is better if you start with a epistemic access device, like. I'm doing and then uh, use it more as a uh, confirmatory, but because yeah, it is uh, a very important part to uh, to argue uh, virtuously or or with excellence um, on our methodology. So I would say there's a lot of uh, takeaways from virtual epistemology. So props for that. So this is going to be the last question, and it's going to be one for both of y'all because I want to hear uh, both of your answers. So we'll start with Travis. What sort of evidence could, in principle, change your mind? from theism to atheism? Okay, uh, great question, Ben, and, and um, I really appreciate it. And the more I've delved into philosophy of religion, um, 
I think one of the most compelling arguments, uh, because it's not really dealt with so much in the literature, is uh, the evolutionary problem of animal pain and suffering, especially uh, Draper's, uh, you know, uh, argument from pain that um, I, I think that that's tough to ground on on um, on, on theism. And um, I don't think a lot of uh, there's been a, lot, a good explanation. I mean, certainly soul building doesn't even touch it, um, you know skeptical theism it seems ad hoc to to address it um I, I think in principle brian davies would because it would see the evil as just a privation of the good and god while god only intends the good you know he's not under obligation you know to stop the privation but uh that that um that is a serious uh argument for atheism uh another argument i i, I think is very convincing is uh because uh, I'm more uh, of a philosophy of science guy, right? And so Oppie will use the same type of argument that I'm using. And he's saying that, uh, okay, so you have something like, you know, a natural explanation and a supernatural explanation. Well, let's use, you know, parsimony and just chop off the supernatural and you have a naturalistic explanation that can account for, you know, the totality of reality. He even has a contingency argument. So, Arguments uh, uh, from from Oppie and Draper um, could, in principle, change my mind. I think they're powerful arguments, and I think it's a serious mistake for uh, apologists to not be aware of or address these serious contentions in the philosophy of religion. And I actually appreciate him bringing that up. It's a very good point. Yeah, I agree <clears throat> wholeheartedly. I People, you know, when I'm you know, talking about philosophy of religion with atheists and, and uh, they ask me, you know, um, or they're using terrible arguments or something like that. I was like, look, mm -hmm. man, you, you need to, you need to read and understand yeah. the evidential problem of evil, the probabilistic uh, problem of evil and divine hiddenness, because as a, theist yeah, that's myself, another, yeah, hidden, yeah. those are the two that I have the most trouble with. It is uh animal suffering um what seems to trust be, me i know that well yeah gratuitous suffering it's uh i am just th those are two things that is hard for me to i, I know the intellectual answers to mm -hmm. it but they're just not completely satisfying uh, right really uh for, for example um you know like i don't want to get into personal stories but like uh with animal suffering um, so like, I, I, you know, you, I can understand why, you know, certain laws of physics and processes are the way they are and, and how God, you know, gives us, you know, gives and takes away and everything, but that deep emotional pain that comes from suffering and, and death and decay, um, it, it does bring, you know, it, it, I think it raises objections to the existence of God. Um, I, I think it, it, we're, uh, you know, we should be under obligation to at least admit there are some very good arguments, uh, evidential arguments for atheism, even though ultimately I find the arguments in favor of theism more probable. I agree. Israel? Yeah, I, I would say something very similar. So uh, that is one thing that I keep telling these atheists in Latin America that, uh, well, atheists and uh, quote unquote, because uh, they're, they're usually neo-atheists. Uh, I don't even 
uh, respect them. Uh, I because uh, atheists, like actual uh, uh, classical atheists, are freaking scary smart. Like they they are oh, yeah. super smart, yeah. and uh, like um, even like how uh, Oppie argues. So I would say there's a lot of of uh, um, uh, of things that that. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that uh, could be that hard uh, to uh, convince me. So uh, one of the things will just be showing that uh, atheism is a better explanation than than uh, than theism. And uh, one of the the uh, ways that that Oppie tries to do this is appealing for a a, a naturalistic singularity being better than God, mm-hmm. explaining the origin of the universe. So uh, and. I would say because of our limitations, uh, I don't. I don't think that uh, atheists have that much access to uh, um, to that much information. Well, not just atheists, uh, also theists. We don't have that much access, so we have to argue inferentially in a lot of stuff. So that that's why uh, if God exists, if we start uh, transcendentally from the existence of God, and uh, it is a reliable uh, uh, source uh, that we can trust, uh, we do have access to that which uh, we have epistemic access to that which the atheist and the non-presuppositionalist don't want to use that epistemic access in order to uh, get those questions. So whenever, uh, if we advance in science and we get epistemic access, and and find uh, something that uh, that is non-God, and uh, I guess uh, that will be pretty uh, strong evidence. Uh, I wouldn't say that would specifically convert me. There will be a lot more stuff and a lot more work to uh, to convince me. But convincing me, my psychological state is not what is important. We tell it to new atheists too. So it's about the evidence being good. So uh, I would say it's uh, just being better. Just that's it. Yes, I uh, quite often. Uh, first of all, I want, uh, let me commend both of you for being extremely open and honest because mm-hmm. I get a lot of pushbacks from, pushback from theists sometimes because I talk about the evidential problem of evil as being significant and divine hiddenness and things yeah. like this. And, uh, you know, so many times, they go, oh, it's not a problem or it can be rationalize like, you know, that's not the point i mean it's mm-hmm. or it's just an emotional argument that that's the one that really gets me because yeah. we are emotional creatures our epistemology yeah. everything about us mm-hmm. ha- is emotionally driven it's uh to just blow off something as just emotional uh is just hand waving it and not addressing the issue that's there and i you usually Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say on that. Um, I, I think, um, and, and I, I do want to uh, apologize to Israel for misunderstanding your disagreement with the Swinburne approach to disagreeing with philosophy of religion and, and that mm-hmm. methodology. So that was, you know, I, I misunderstood you. But um, Eddie, so uh, one thing um, that I think is really important here is a distinction between pop level apologetics and deep philosophical discussions in the philosophy of religion. Because one thing that I, I, that really bugs me to no end and it is um, you have something like the problem of evil, right? Well, there's a certain apologetic approach that says, well, that presupposes a, a standard of, of morality. And then so you can't, you know, evil actually is evidence for God because it's a moral, you know, an objective moral claim. And um, I think that's a, terrible argument um yeah i'm with you i'm i i 
correct people all the time. I'm not an apologist. That argument. I'm a yeah. philosopher. Uh, yeah. I consider myself a philosopher. Yeah, I don't I'm like philosophy of religion. Um, I defend my views, make sure they're rational, uh, that they're tenable. But I, uh, I don't really defend the faith. Uh, I don't see a really, especially in this country. I mean. Who hasn't heard about? Well, I, I do evangelism. Out. I'm big on evangelism. We got to <laughs> <So>, do that, bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, my evangelism is just me um, uh, living as an example, uh, you know, trying to love people and, and be as much like Christ as possible. Um, but with that, so Ben tried to corrupt the whole thing by and leave it to him to bring up Hegel. We're not going oh, to anything no. Hegelian tonight. I'm sorry, Ben. I just, my head can't take it. Uh, so, we're going to go into closings, just yeah. quick, you know, five minutes or so. If you don't need five minutes, that's fine. Just to sum up uh, maybe a couple of things that the other person didn't uh, answer or okay. wh why you feel like uh, that the exchange was in your favor. And uh, so we'll start. You went first, Travis. So we'll let you start first on closing and let okay. Israel uh, close it out with the last word. So. I'm going to remove Travis. <laughs> I think it was the, I think yeah. it was the other way around. Man. Yeah, other <laughs> way around. <laughs> I'm going to remove Israel. Travis going to start, but yeah, remove him. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen his face in the backstage. He was like, "What the what?" <laughs> He's like, "Wait, no, 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 no." Oh, okay, here we go. Uh, now I'm going to take Israel out. I got the right one that time. Uh, and I'm going to let you go. And I'm, I'm going to start the uh, counter and pop in at five minutes. That's the max time you have, but you don't have to take all of it. Okay. So first of all, you know, I'd like to say how great I look on camera. I mean, I look fin. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, yeah, I had a really good, uh, conversation um i really uh, uh appreciate israel and before you know we get to the uh closing segment one thing that's really important uh in these type of discussions is that we are brothers in christ that we share uh you know the faith uh the christian faith uh, uh and, and our, our our love for jesus we have some um dis differences on how we go about you know um convincing and making argumentations for that but at the core level we're brothers in christ and we're unified in christ and so um i think we had a really civil discussion and i would first and foremost want to encourage more conversations to be a little more civil with these disagreements uh than I, i've kind of seen but um so here's the thing uh when it comes to um not answering uh, with virtue epistemology. Uh, my understanding of it is that, um, as I was saying, that it, it takes you know these uh, you know intellectual virtues as, as having high priority and um, and being foundational. And it's a very new to me. And the reason um, that I kind of wanted to adopt that view is because of my high regard for the theoretical virtues used in the philosophy of science. And um, as far as, an, you know, um, we'll get to the uh, objections here. As far as my epistemic grounding, I'm a phenomenal conservatist. Uh, so I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I personally know and experience Christ. Um, I have, uh, you know, you know, 
the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, like when I read various passages of, of Scripture. So as a phenomenal conservatist, I do have that direct acquaintance, and I have a way that in the absence of any overwhelming defeaters, I'm epistemically justified in that. I simply don't uh, make that argument, uh, you know, to to the non-believer because I think it's more fruitful uh, in the philosophy of religion. Uh, this sort of new take that's uh, really taking hold of combining philosophy of science with philosophy of religion. When we look at these theoretical virtues, it's a good way because, you know, these are competing hypotheses to explain ultimate reality. So we have something akin to theism. And uh, the virtues would rule out polytheism, you know, simplicity, unification. So we have something akin to theism and metaphysical naturalism. These are ultimate explanations, uh, you know, for reality. And so assessing the theoretical virtues uh, to show which is, is more favorable and uh, looking at various observations and asking if under this theory it should be an expected matter of course – has been making tremendous progress in the philosophy of religion. Uh, this can be seen with the work of Oppie, uh, with Swinburne, uh, even to an extent Rasmussen. So this is a, a good way that um, atheist and, and theist philosophers can have meaningful dialogue. And so that's why uh, I use this methodology uh, in discussions of the philosophy of religion. Now, when it comes to my faith, uh, yeah, I have the inner witness, uh, direct acquaintance with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, with Christ, uh, through phenomenal conservatism. I would say I'm epistemically justified, unless you can show some overwhelming defeater of that. So I do have that. I just prefer to use that methodology that I do for the progress in philosophy of religion. And I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. So that's all I got. Thank you very much, Travis. That was yes, brief and almost right on time. You had about a minute left, but that's okay. Uh, so now I will properly remove you. Welcome, Israel. You okay. have five minutes. I'll start the timer when I pop off the screen. Yeah, first, uh, I want to say a uh, huge thanks to uh, to Eddie and to Travis. Uh, and as we mentioned, uh, I really like that we did this extremely brotherly, not just the debate itself, but also the process. Uh, it was really cool dealing with uh, both uh, Eddie and Travis. And uh, I, as I mentioned before, I learned a lot uh, in the process and uh, just reminded in uh, some stuff. And uh, but yeah, going uh, back to uh, to the case, what I think uh, happened in the debate is that um, he I, I don't I don't think Travis uh, gave gave us a good explanation on why uh, he necessarily has to reject uh, an epistemic access device. I think uh, uh, so. Usually, what uh, he's been saying uh, a couple times is usually that uh, yeah, these uh, so uh, in philosophy of religion, there's all this literature and uh, it's uh, it gets us to a lot of truths. And I would say uh, yeah, we get to a lot of truths. And I would say it's a uh, 
uh, it should be more looked into by presuppositionalists. I would um, actually call out my my camp on sometimes being uh, lazy, uh, basically just funding uh, presuppositionalism and doing some some uh, uh, quick uh, rehearsal without going into uh, philosophy of religion. And I think that is uh, quite uh, problematic because you've got to understand the other uh, person's position and it takes time uh, in order to uh, refute properly. But um, so, so yeah, I would say my camp should uh, uh, get a little bit out of the the uh, the uh, um, common uh, scripts, the easy scripts, uh, because it can work to an extent, but it's kind of hard to make it work uh, in a higher um, argumentation. But but yeah, so uh, some some of the things that happened in the, the debate. Um, so uh, Travis didn't put a, uh, a reason of why uh, he doesn't use the epistemic access device. So just saying, oh, it's uh, all these. Um, uh, uh, Scholars in epistemology just do great work. I don't think that's not a a defeater. So yeah, they do great work, but there's limitations, and they uh, uh, give it, getting an epistemic access device uh, gives us uh, epistemic access to solve a lot of those limitations, a lot of gettier problems that we didn't get into that that we could have got into. Also, another thing that uh, was admitted uh, during the debate was about the <clears throat> about the necessary truths uh, about um, arguing transcendentally for uh, necessary truths so uh, Travis admitted that uh, it, it he accepts that it is necessary because the absurdity of the contrary and uh, so I, I would say that's a big admission because if we're talking about uh, propositions with uh, truth value. There's a lot of uh, proposition of truth value in the case that he's using on virtual epistemology and on um, assuming the I in uh, when it comes to direct uh, acquaintance. So uh, he uses for the I of direct, uh, uh, the I problem of direct acquaintance and he uses for the oddness uh, problem uh, in uh, when it comes to uh, arguing what is virtuous. Uh, what is that thing that is virtuous that we are going to use to analyze our epistemology it depends on oughtness. So if those things um, can uh, be put into uh, propositions and have a truth value and you've got to argue for them uh, transcendentally because of the absurdity of them not being uh, uh, necessary truths, then um, you kind of start transcendentally. So if you start transcendentally, then I would say that it's, that helps a whole of a lot in uh, to my case. I would say it's a a big point that um, hopefully it didn't went on notice. Uh, so. So yeah, I would say those two were the uh, the main points, but um, but yeah, I would say there's all a lot of value on what uh, Travis had to bring and what uh, evidentialists have to bring. Is just that uh, I would say use it, just don't throw away your epistemic access advice, which is uh, scriptures and God, if God can reveal it to you. Because as I mentioned, um, uh, with the when it comes to the uh, facets of an inference to the best explanation, uh, it gives you higher. Epi- um, um, explanatory power, explanatory scope, um, a lot of uh, um, <clears throat> accord, uh, being, being in accord with uh, uh, commonly uh, held beliefs as we use epistemic access devices uh, the whole time. Uh, simplicity, as uh, it, we have to argue confirmatorily, uh, in my view, while he has to bring his case uh, from zero up, and even in starting from zero, you still have to argue transcendentally, uh, as we mentioned with the proposition. So, um, I would say that's a a big point too, and uh, 
but yeah, I guess uh, those were the main problems that we touched, uh, those three things. And I would say that's it for me. And thank you, Eddie. And thank you, um, uh, Travis. It was super cool talking to you guys and hope to learn more as I learned a lot in this debate and keep learning more from you guys. So that's cool. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and I'm going to close it out with the people. If you guys want to hang out backstage, I'll talk to you for a couple minutes afterwards. If you have to go, that's fine. Uh, so you're going to the back. There you go. Travis, virtue, epistemology, Israel, presuppositionalism. I think, uh, first of all, thank, thank you both for presenting uh, very good cases, very nuanced. Definitely, uh, we can tell that you spent a good bit of time on it. And I really appreciate that. Um, I'll let you guys decide who the winner is. Uh, I think we're all winners because they brought such good discussions and such good cases. So thank you for everybody that joined us. Remember um, you can find brute facts podcast on all of the major podcast platforms. Uh, that includes Apple, Google, all the good ones, Spotify, um, we haven't pulled it because of Joe Rogan, not big enough for that. So uh, <laughs> with that, good night. Thank you, everybody, for coming. <laughs>